I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to Cinematic Universe, the podcast that does for comic book movies what one too many villains did for Spider-Man 3. I'm Joe Cunningham, and joining me to help make sense of the comics behind the movies are... Sir Patrick. And James Hunt. We'll discuss the latest comic book movie and TV news, kinda, but we really did kind of <laughs> use all of that up on our Comic-Con episode, all two and a half hours of it. I, I love that usually, like, when, when it takes us a few days to actually release an episode from when we recorded it, a load of stuff happens in the interim that means that our news is out of date. But this time, there was so much news at Comic-Con that everyone's just gone, let's just have the week off, and there's been, yeah. like, no news. <laughs> sense it's been fantastic um but yeah so after that we'll dive into our spoiler filled discussion of sam raimi's 2007 movie spider-man 3 uh seb as you pointed out earlier our last ever spider-man movie that is like not that already that existed already yeah. already existed i know We've got through this will be our, our sixth spider-man movie plus his little cameos elsewhere end of an era but anyway before any of that I get to ask Seven James to explain to me something that I don't know about, and I'm going to pick a character at random here from Spider-Man 3, because I think it's going to be difficult for you to tell me, because it feels like we've talked these characters to death. So let's say the new Goblin. Can you tell me something I don't know about the new Goblin? <laughs> yeah, he doesn't <laughs> exist. <laughs> Is there, but it, the, what is Harry, Harry Osborn then, I guess? That's what I'm trying to say. Yeah, in the comics, Harry Osborn is the second Green Goblin. Like, yeah. it's more like Amazing Spider-Man Two. Yeah, but Seb, I don't know if you can remember what was the action figure of of so, this character called. Yeah, it was oh. Night Surfer because yeah, in the, Night in the Surfer. credits, I knew it was Night Something. He, yeah, in the credits, he's called New Goblin, and that surprised me at the end of this because I remembered all the laughter that there was when it was announced that the, that rather than being the Goblin Two, uh, he was going to be Night Surfer. In, I don't in remember night. I, I don't remember that at all. It was only um, on action figures. It was de- before the film came out. It was definitely being taught. Like if you if you Google Harry Osborn Night Surfer, as I've just done, the first uh, result is a thread from the Superhero Hype Forums, which is a website <laughs> I used to write for. That website when it was just Spider Man hype. Uh, I used to write comics <laughs> reviews for it because I used to be on the forums before the first Spider Man film came out, um, and. Uh, in fact, it looks like they got it from. Oh, I wonder if this image is still on Photo Bucket. Let's see. Uh, from Empire Magazine. This is so. This is a little box out in Empire that says Harry is obsessed with getting revenge on Peter for the murder of his father. Using his dad's technology, Osborne becomes the Night Surfer and upends Parker's world. So I don't know if it did actually ever make it onto toys. Maybe it did as well. But I 100% was on toys because that was the only place I saw it. Is that that's what it was scripted as, and uh, then people reacted to it and they backtracked from it. And obviously, he's (laughs) never referred to it on screen because there's not really an opportunity. Yeah. to do so i mean it's it's um, not unusual for them to not use the superhero code name in a movie is it yeah like 
He's never called Whiplash an Iron Man 2. To call him New Goblin on the credits suggests that <laughs> quite, they, quite. Yeah, they were back in the I mean, it, it could have been that they released that name as a way of trying to avoid spoiling what was happening. But, I mean, because, you know, if, if you call him the Green Goblin, that immediately says villain. So in the comics, is it always that he has taken up the Green Goblin mantra after his dad has died? Yeah. Am I right in thinking, and again, James, you might know this, in one of the cartoons, was he actually the Hobgoblin? Or is that just something where... I'm oh. sure I remember people talking about, in relation to the movies, people going, oh, he's going to be the Hobgoblin in, in when they get round to the third movie, um, rather than the Green Goblin, and that maybe that was based on the cartoons or something. I don't remember that being the case in any of the cartoons, although there was that... Um, there was that cartoon series based on the first movie that MTV did that I've never watched so it might have happened in Bendis worked on that I think didn't he really wow yeah it was and Neil Patrick Harris was uh, (laughs) Spider-Man that's the one (laughs) Um, uh, he does die in the comics and again you know spoilers for later (laughs) in the podcast uh, a particular section of the podcast where I might talk about this in more detail because it might be one of my favourite comics ever Um, but he did then come back in the Dan Slot run? He came back to life at the start of Brand New Day. Oh, right, yeah, it was part of the... Yeah, it was part of yeah. the Mephisto wipe, I don't, wasn't it? Well, this is the thing. I don't think it was officially Mephisto who did it. But during the... There was a little gap after the Mephisto thing where he was revealed to be alive and in Europe, much like his father previously mm. was. So I don't think it was supernatural, but he did come back. Mm. And well, he, hey, there you go. I've learned lots about Harry Osborn. He pretty I? much hasn't relapsed since then, has he? Like he's just—I think that you have this thing where you're kind of waiting for the other shoe to drop. And there's been a couple of instances where there's been villainous characters related to goblins. Like there was Menace, which turned out I think to be his girlfriend. His girlfriend, yeah. yeah. Um, and then obviously when uh, you had the Goblin King and it was the question of, is that going to be Norman? Is it going to be Harry? Who's going to be? And actually, pretty much since coming back, Harry has actually been a good guy. Um, and again, I, I quite like him being around in the background as a, a friend of Peter's with a troubled past, I think works quite <laughs> well. Oh, I'll tell you what, I will tell you something you don't know about Harry Osborn. Uh, in some of his earliest appearances, Harry Osborn had an amazing moustache. So look look that up. (laughs) He's got very weird hair in the comics. Yeah, all of the Osborns do. It's a thing. Right. No one really knows. Just before we get too deep into this, I just want to tell you something about Sandman that you don't know. Okay. So Sandman reformed in the comics and joined the Avengers for years. Ah. He was like a a good guy. And then, ooh, who was it? Was it Straczynski got hold of him and decided he probably should be evil again? So had the wizard use a machine on him that made him evil again. And since then, he's been evil. Was it Straczynski or was it Byrne? It was one of those guys. Sounds like it was maybe Byrne. I have a feeling that I was going to say Byrne. It sounds more like a Byrne thing, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. In fact, no, it definitely was Byrne. Yeah, yeah. I just want to quote at you the panel that I just from Googling for Harry Osborne's moustache with him saying, Hi, Harry, is that all you say to a pal who's sporting his new Fu Manchu face fuzz? Oh, dear. Uh-oh. That seems problematic. Okay, let's move on now because we're going to do enough talking about Spider-Man later in the podcast uh, to talk, well, the the only real piece of news there is out there and that is that the the Disney and Fox shareholders have voted today to agree to move forward uh, with Disney's acquisition of 20th Century Fox. Um, (laughs) 
Seb, so, do you want to lead us in a rendition of It's Coming Home? <laughs> <laughs> Too soon, James. Um, I did see someone say about the, the that they were all coming home, and I was like, no, but they weren't there in the first place. So, yeah. <laughs> come on, guys, get it right. So, yeah, it looks like it looks like now it is a case of formalities. Disney. I'm not sure when we last talked about this. We talked about it a couple of times. But Disney had to up their bid after Comcast came back in, um, and it sounds like that. Fox wanted to do wanted to do the deal with Disney it lined up kind of with what they what they were hoping to achieve from the deal um and again we can we've we've talked about in the past all of the kind of potentially troubling things that come out of this uh D- Disney now has a whole pile of more um creators to trawl through the tweets of uh, to see whether they are suitable <laughs> to continue working for the company um but it looks like it will be a deal that is completed midway through 2019. So I think we are all confident that the that, that Avengers Infinity War 2, Avengers 4, whatever it's going to be called, um, that that's not going to feature like mutants and Fantastic Four characters or anything like that. And again, whether this actually means the Fantastic Four are part of the MCU, it would probably make them the most natural place for the production company that owns the rights to take them, but not a guarantee. Um, but whether I, I think we, none of us expect that Avengers 4 will feature those characters, but we maybe could start to expect to see some teases, depending on how confident Disney are, depending on like how close to being signed off the deal is, that maybe yeah. there could be a stinger on the end of Avengers 4. I think we will see X-Men before we see anything else. Although, I mean, X-Men still has the thing of, as a franchise, it's kind of a standalone entity. And, you know, the X-Men can exist completely separate from the Marvel Universe and vice versa. So it really depends whether whether Disney want to fold all their Marvel franchises into one or whether they want to, you know, create essentially a second strand. Because they they've spoken before about how, like, maybe we don't actually want the X-Men and the Avengers in one universe. Maybe we keep them separate and have, you know, have the X-Men running parallel. Do you know you what have I your think... super, Supergirl and Flash universes, essentially. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, they can... Doesn't mean they can't do crossovers. Yeah. But, it, you know, it's it's an interesting situation where they've got, essentially now, two big superhero franchises that might make more money apart than together. Do you know what? I, I, as far as timing of this goes what seems like would fit perfectly is we are going we are going to have next year an avengers movie in which by whatever means <laughs> either time is going to have to be reversed or reality mm. is going to have to be rewritten in order to undo the stuff that's been done it's not because it's not just going to be there everyone is going to have been dead and then come back to life it is going to have to surely, just for the psychological well-being of 50% of the population of the <laughs> Earth, it's going to have to be, it never happened, is how mm-hmm. that's going to have to be undone. And is that not a perfect time for someone like the Fantastic Four to have always existed in the new reality that we are left with after Avengers 4? 
that's the that's the reality I can foresee, and I do wonder whether internally at Marvel the the conversation that we had last week surrounding James Gunn and all of the cosmic side of Marvel that was supposedly going to be explored post Guardians three. Um, I do wonder, you know, based on the films that we are confident that we're seeing in Phase 4, most of them are sequels to properties we already know about or are movies for characters, um, you know, that like, like so we, we'll see Black Widow, who we've already seen, and, you know, we'll get we'll probably get a Captain Marvel sequel, we'll get, you know, the Spider-Man sequel that we know is coming, but does that cosmic stuff actually go on the back burner now? Today? <laughs> uh, I think completely the opposite because they now have the rights to Galactus. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't care what anyone says. If, if Marvel had had the Fox right, uh, the, yeah, the, you know, collection of Fox rights in the past, they would not have gone to Thanos first. They would have gone. Galactus is the guy. Do you not think though that, Obviously, the the way that they built up to Thanos was that they introduced the idea of Infinity Stones in a couple of movies leading up to the Avengers and then revealed Thanos as, oh, this is our big bad, we're going to build to him. Uh, seven, eight years later, we've had all of our Thanos hints, we've had all of our Infinity Stones popping up here, there and everywhere, and now we've got the big battle. They've got... They, they can't do that again. They can't just have that same. Oh, there's a villain in the background, and in eight years you'll you'll see the Avengers fight him. I know, sure, but I think they'll have a villain in the background, which is like Galactus is coming, and then next Avengers film, Avengers five, whatever, everyone versus Galactus. What I'm looking forward to, I think, is the possibility of having uh, an enlarged purple villain. Um, who is all conquering and terrifying, but whose motivations, when you actually boil it down, you can't really necessarily blame him that much for, and you can kind of understand a little bit. I think that'd be a really interesting new direction for the films to go in. <laughs> what's your, sorry, what's your sympathetic angle on Galactus? He's just he's hungry. <laughs> yeah, I know. He doesn't but... want to kill. It's just like you know. Jaws was just hungry. Come on, James. Are you a vegetarian? <laughs> no. You, you eat things that are smaller than you. So does Galactus. It doesn't make me the hero. <laughs> that is definitely true, James. <laughs> so you're saying you can only be the hero if you are a vegetarian? Yes. Okay. That's well, an interesting anyway, stance. I think probably with Kevin Feige and the creative team at Marvel Studios, they probably have, you know, they've probably got a million ideas <laughs> yeah, popping around their brains. of how. full of this crap. Yeah. And, and so we are kind of talking here, I think, about... Yes, the Fantastic Four characters and the vi- and the Fantastic Four villains, if they do properly make their way to Marvel, which I think one way or another now they will. Um, Fantastic because, Four, definitely. Because what? Well, because who? Who else is going to make? It's Constantine yeah. Productions or something like that, isn't it? And <laughs> well, who else, who else is gonna... can can turn those characters into a movie that makes money after two like fucked up franchises? Yeah, and who else would want to? go up against Disney. Yeah, you know? it's, the, it's the Spider-Man situation. Like, you screwed it up twice. Let's <laughs> let us do it. I mean, genuinely, let's talk through the options. Disney now owns Fox. Sony Sony works with Disney on the, on the Spider-Man movies. Warner Brothers have their own DC universe. It would there would be no benefit to them from doing this. The only option is Universal, really. And then and then you're kind of mid-level studios like your Lionsgate's kind of, and 
<laughs> I would like to see the Fantastic Four in the Dark Universe. <laughs> oh, that'd be incredible. Um, <laughs> from, from the X-Men side of things, uh, obviously the, the kind of franchises that exist within the X-Men is the, uh, is the main X-Men franchise, which feels like it's petering out. Uh, we've obviously got Dark Phoenix next year. Well, there were. Um, I don't really want to give them any more credence, other than it sounds like Reddit bullshit. But the the scuttlebutt of um, New Mutants will be re-edited to not be about mutants uh, or any X Men connection, and Dark Phoenix may not be released at all, has been doing the rounds again. I just, which I, I think just is bollocks, but yeah, that's, yeah, that's absolutely worth acknowledging that it's out there. Happen. Maybe it's not worth acknowledging that it's out because there, because <laughs> Fox will Fox will still make the money from releasing those films unless <laughs> unless Disney have like added a little addendum on this bottom bottom of the deal like don't release these and we'll give you X amount of cash. It would not it surprise me if they ended up on Netflix or something. Well, this yeah, was the, we, well, this we was we the thing people before, were saying yeah. about New Mutants, and it was the thing that you've said before about it could end up being a Netflix thing, but possibly a Netflix thing with all of the references to X-Men <laughs> removed from it. I don't know about that. <laughs> yeah, I, I still think it will come out as an X-Men film. Um, I mean, the, the X-Men films have, re- have been released, a lot of them, without much reference to each other anyway, so mm-hmm. you could just have characters who are mutants and that film exists and never connects in with anything else, that's fine. Do do we think that, that Dark Phoenix is going to be the last X-Men film to be released with any of that cast? 100%, yes. Yeah, yeah. I would put money on that yesterday. Uh, or, well, not any of that cast, because some of that cast are in New Mutants, but, um, <laughs> like, it... it Generally, I think that that franchise is over with that movie. Unless um, New Mutants does like five times its budget. And then obviously Deadpool is the is the wild card. The, I mean, the, the thing about stuff. Deadpool though is that you could transplant this version of Deadpool into any other superhero mm. universe without missing a beat. Yeah, you could, you could literally have the third Deadpool movie where Deadpool walks into an X mansion and goes, "Oh, her." Where sorry, where where are all the X Men? Oh, this is the Avengers Mansion. Hello, Jarvis. Yeah. Do you know that that mm-hmm. kind of thing would you know? And and even, you just carry on. Even before Deadpool had a post credit scene in which he shoots Ryan Reynolds in the head, <laughs> um, you could you could argue that the Deadpool films, you know, can just exist in whatever universe. It is now already established that categorically. Um, Deadpool is is not limited to just being in the X Men universe. If he was ever in it in the first place, yeah. be interesting to see what uh, Disney think of um, Deadpool's humour. <laughs> It'd be interesting to see what they think of Ryan Reynolds's tweets. <laughs> yeah, or Deadpool's baby dick, for that matter. Yeah, extended cut coming soon. Apparently, <laughs> I um I do wonder whether. I don't know that this this will be one of those classics will create a banner under which certain films will continue to be released because there are a lot of more adult franchises. Forget about just the the X-Men and the Marvel stuff. There are a lot of more mature franchises coming over from 20th Century Fox, stuff like the the Alien franchise, for example, that you probably don't want to release under the same banner as Yeah, they're going to have to have a less rapey Miramax. Uh, yes, quite. <laughs> um, so yeah, so we just thought we would we would chat about that briefly because it it sounds like it it almost certainly is happening now, and um, it'll be interesting. It'll be interesting. I think if Marvel is smart, 
they bide their time. And if anything, that's the thing that you bed into the background when it, when a mutant's coming and when are the Fantastic Four coming and maybe like tease their introduction over the course of a number of years. I just can't wait to see his recast as Wolverine. Alden Elvenreich. He was genuinely one of my suggestions about two or three years ago. But the rate <laughs> he gets cast in things is probably going to be fucking Jeremy Renner. Oh, hello. <laughs> <laughs> Where's Hawkeye? Dunno, but I'm, I've got these claws now. Yeah, fine. I'm, I'm on board. <laughs> yeah. Okay, um, so that was the brief bit of comic movie uh, news for this week. We will take a short break now while we listen to the trailer for Sam Raimi's Spider-Man 3. I'm going to ask MJ to marry me. A man has to put his wife before himself. Can you do that, Peter? Yeah, I think I can. We have some new information. This is your uncle's actual killer. We lost his trail two days ago. This man killed my uncle, and he's still out there. Everybody needs help sometimes, Peter. Even Spider-Man. Revenge is like a poison. It can take us over. Before you know it, it can turn you into something ugly. (gasps) The suit. Where'd this come from? The power. Feels good. You lose yourself to it. Whoa! Spidey, love the new outfit! Remember Ben Parker? What does it matter to you anyway? Everything! Do you want to push me away? Why would I want to push you away? I love you. You knew this was coming, Pete. I didn't kill your father! We have to forgive each other, or everything we ever were will mean nothing. I need your help. I have to stop it. This could be the end of Spider-Man. Right, guys, Spider-Man 3, our final uh, archive Spider-Man movie. Do you and, remember um, when this was the worst Spider-Man movie? <laughs> 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 Seems like a long time ago, doesn't it? It was only a very short period from, like, what, 2007 to 2011 or something. We were chatting about this, and um, it is, I think we all agree the fourth best Spider-Man movie, at least the fourth best movie with Spider-Man in the title. Yes. Oh, yeah, like not not counting Civil War. Yeah. Um, And I think we literally, I think we pretty much all agree on the exact order of the seven films, other than I have moments where I prefer Spider-Man 1 to Spider-Man 2 just because it's my favourite. It's a personal thing, yeah. Yes, and I also personally hate Amazing Spider-Man more than I hate Amazing (laughs) Spider-Man Two. But but apart from that, we're both we're we're all yeah. I mean, I I I, and I think it's it is quite large gaps between them. Like you know, I like you, and as we talked about in so much detail, I do still adore the first film. But I think the second one is is so categorically better at 
everything that it's doing that I, I do think Spider-Man 2 is significantly ahead of Spider-Man 1. I think yeah, this same. film is significantly behind the two of them um, and significantly behind Homecoming, which sits almost in the middle between Spider-Man 2 and Spider-Man 2. Maybe a little bit closer to Spider-Man 2 than it is to... Uh, sorry, Spider-Man 1. Than it, sorry, Spider-Man 1, not Spider-Man 3. Um, I think the good stuff in 3 is better than the good stuff in Homecoming, but also Homecoming has less bad stuff. <laughs> no, I, 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 just, I think... I just think... I mean, just... Uh, Homecoming is just a better and more coherent film than, than this. I mean, that is true. Um, but, and yeah, what, what we surely can't disagree with is you've then got that enormous gulf back Back to Amazing Spider-Man, a gulf that for me has only grown as the years have gone by. <laughs> uh, I think when Amazing Spider-Man first came out, I, I probably I hadn't seen this for quite a long time uh, at the time, and I probably thought eh, maybe it's better than Spider-Man Three. I probably would have put Amazing Spider-Man in third place back then, but actually no, it is so far behind. And then Amazing Spider-Man Two is the worst film that we've ever covered on this podcast. So, yeah. Um. <laughs> And I think we are all on a pretty similar page on this movie, which is that I mean there are there will be broad differences. I mean, James, what did you what did you message us last night that this film is pretty much bad from the get go? Yeah, which I don't quite agree with. Mm. I think it's kind of functioning on some level for a good hour. Do you know? I, and... I, I think I think part of it is um, I, I I think I think you're right. Um, that it's yeah I mean I don't think it's bad from start to finish I think noticeably it's not as good as the first two for a lot yes. of that period and I think as I say when it's only the when it's only the third of three films um, it, it feels bad in that sense I think looking at it now I think what really carries so much of this film is the goodwill you have towards this series of films mm. and I found myself watching this thinking there's stuff and i think less so in the back end of the film where stuff really does fall apart but in that first half an hour or so because i think it gets really good in the middle um i think in the first half hour or so james where you said you think it's just flat out bad i was kind of this is doing a weaker version of what the first two were doing but i kind of like it because it's all of these actors and all of these characters and um, one of the things that I've really got a lot of time for in these films is James Franco as Harry so the increased focus on that side of things carried me through I think the first kind of 30-40 minutes that are a bit weaker see for me it just the individual scenes are fine but there's no like the first the first act of the film is just a series of scenes that are either completely disconnected like thematically and narratively mm. or worse is that they only exist in juxtaposition because of like some really stupid coincidences. Mm. And then as soon as you get to the bit where Harry gets amnesia after a very like <laughs> stupid oh, fight. I, I don't know. I, just see, I love that like, fight. Oh, I love that moment where he whacks his head on the pipe because it comes kind of comes out of nowhere and it's almost slapstick. I really like that yes. as a sudden way to end that, especially because yeah, it's they... not it's not the only moment where it happens. I love the fact that in this film you've got several moments of Peter fighting Harry and fighting him like he would fight a villain because he's Spider-Man and Harry's being the villain and then like having to wreak quite shocking violence on Harry that's that's quite upsetting <laughs> to him. Um but I think I think what's clear and what you were saying about you know disjointed scenes is totally true because I think what's quite clear is that there are like three different films in this film. Um, so should we, can, we, the... can we do the obvious? Can we do the like the really cliche obvious takes on this movie and yeah. get them out of the way? <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. 
obviously the cliche, the, the biggest cliche about this movie, it doesn't make it any less true, is that there are too many villains. Mm. And I, I, not that in number, like with there being, so what, there's New Goblin, Venom, and Sandman. Mm. Three villains in total, as we've seen in other movies, is not too much for a movie to exist. But the fact that the movie almost kind of introduces them all, or at times deals with them all as if they are equally the main villain. Mm-hmm. Um, and of and, and I think the other thing that's crucial is that you have a director who wanted to make a film about two of the villains and not the other, and a studio yeah. who wanted to make a yeah. movie about one of the villains and not the other two. And so you just what what you ultimately get is a really disjointed movie. But it led to five plus years of hot takes about, oh, well, you don't want to have the Spider-Man 3 overstuffing your mm. movie with villains problem. Um, and it's not it's not the number, it's the execution. Yeah. I mean, and can I... And I, I don't think, I mean, again, we'll get into a bit more detail, but I think people would be minded to say that you should just completely take Venom out of this film. Um, <laughs> yes. I think yes, you take and the they Venom would be out. correct. No, but but I don't think the like if you say if you're talking about the three strands of the film, which are the Harry Strand, the Sandman Strand, and the Venom Strand, the Harry Strand is I think the one that the film does most successfully. I think the Sandman Strand is the one that has the most potential to be good and is the one that Sam Raimi was interested in, but it gets so little running time that it's executed badly. Um, and it just he's he's so disconnected from everything else that's going on in the film that you almost forget that he's part of it for most of yeah, it. Yeah. And then you've got the Venom Strand, which shouldn't have been in there and isn't executed well. Except that I think all the stuff with Eddie Brock is great and works oh. really well. All the stuff with Eddie in terms of Peter's life and Gwen and, and bringing someone like Eddie in and the stuff with the fake photos and all of that. If you were using this film to set up Venom as the villain for Spider-Man 4 and you yeah. don't have the bit at the end where he becomes Venom but you just have Eddie as a background character building up the resentment so you end this film with Eddie as a guy who hates Peter Parker and then finds out that Peter Parker is Spider-Man and gets the symbiote that would be great because I, I, I and I think Topher Grace is really good at being no, a dickhead oh there we go <laughs> that's the part where we dis- that's the part I don't again. I don't want to lean into one of the cliches, but one of the cliches of this movie is Topher Grace is bad. I don't. I don't think so because I think he's supposed to be a dick, and and I think he plays it well, intentionally or not. I I bought him as a I just, douche I have, in this film. I I I've never bought Topher Grace as a compelling. Well, I think the presence. world agrees with you because I genuinely don't know <laughs> if he's been in anything since this. Well, that, I mean that's that seventy show was huge, wasn't it? People. No, that? yeah, but that was before this, wasn't it? He got this off the back of it. I like his version of Eddie Brock in that he is, he's like a, a version of Peter Parker who sort of went wrong. Yeah. And like, that's not Venom in the comics, but for this film, it works. And I think especially the stuff that works with in the Venom strand is the rivalry with, with Eddie Brock and the the sort of effect the black suit has on him. And I wish they'd spent more time investigating the black suit effect. Because that's the lack of that is what really like hobbles that entire strand. Can I uh, actually just quickly before we get past? I've my take on this film is that the villain is not New Goblin slash Night Surfer, and it's not Venom, and it's not even Sandman. Like the actual villain of this film, Peter is Parker. Peter Parker's inability to maintain a relationship, and <laughs> yes. the film should have been about that. 
Yeah. And and the, because Venom, that's because of the scene we're going to talk about. It Venom's good when it's a metaphor. Yeah. Mm. It's good when it's a metaphor for kind of like the... Well, because... The recesses of Peter, yeah, and, the, and and like his, the, he is he is being a completely unaware dick to Mary Jane from this word is, go. This is the first film where I was like, yeah, this is the first film where I was like, oh, actually, I feel bad for Mary Jane, and I understand where it's <laughs> where she's coming from, and yeah. Peter is being a, a proper dick to her and not noticing. Like, well, Venom pretty much comes about as a well, Venom is when the symbiote takes over. Peter is a metaphor for his hubris and mm-hmm. his hubris is enormous for the first hour of this movie. It's a it's a really really key thing about Spider-Man and and I, and I think it does owe something in part to the fact that he was created by Steve Ditko, God rest his soul, <laughs> who was an objectivist and really really not a very nice person. But like James and I would agree that Peter Parker Spider-Man is one of if not the greatest superhero and and like you know pretty much the greatest character in comics and it's not that i mean and he is a great hero he's absolutely a great hero and and so many of the best spider-man moments are about him being heroic superior spider-man is so good because it's about the heroism of peter parker overcoming the selfishness of otto octavius and all of that but part of why he's so good is that he's not Superman, and you know I love Superman as well. He's not someone who is <laughs> yeah. inherently good, who then came to Earth and was raised by good people to be even gooder. He's um, not infallible, is he? Yeah. P- Peter Parker, as shown in his very first appearance, absolutely has the potential to be a horrible, twisted and bitter person. And it is him overcoming that that makes him Spider-Man. And like, you know, you know that scene where he's getting the key to the city and he's yeah. like, acting out for the crowd and like yeah. he's clearly loving it. I was that watching is... that going like this is one of the most Spider-Man scenes that has, been on, that has been put in any of the movies. Yeah, because, because it's about Peter Parker forgetting into... himself. Yeah, yeah forgetting that he's supposed to be better than that. Yeah. And obviously he feels bad later, but most mm. of the movies don't don't let him have that moment of, of selfishness that he then has to regret. Mm. And if it's a if it's a I don't even want to call it a failing but if it's something that's missing in the Tom Holland version that I that I absolutely love and I did say on Twitter how difficult it is now to imagine someone other than Tom Holland as Peter Parker I can't imagine Tom Holland's Peter Parker ever being ever having that side of his personality he's too nice yeah he's conversely too Andrew the Andrew Garfield version leaned into that too much <laughs> you can see what they were yeah. trying for with it but they definitely went way too far with it I think there's a bit of that in Tom Holland's Peter. He is he is very nice, but there's moments in the middle stretch of that movie um, mm. when he becomes like uber focused on Spider Man and kind of is a bit of a dick to people around him. Maybe I think I think just I think just now all all, all you have in your mind when you think of that of that Peter Parker is him apologising to Tony Stark for dying. Mm, yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, I mean, I still haven't really forget, forgiven him for missing the uh, Mathletics or whatever it was that he missed. Let's let's go back to the start of the, the start of the movie because, um, like like you said, James, I think it starts off like a, a stodgier version of the other two. I, I don't I don't think it does anything massively egregious. It it, it lays the groundwork for some of the stuff but i don't think it does anything massively egregious for me until after the proposal really 
Um, but yeah, the the first the first hour is there's there's some interesting stuff introduced. So we kind of we're picking up a year after Spider Man Two, but with stuff having not really moved on. So Peter and Mary Jane are together. He um, he's planning to propose to her. She is um, at this point seemingly embarking on a successful career on Broadway. Um, I think I think you you say things haven't moved. I think there is there is something quite interesting that it does at the start, which is that it opens with a happy Peter well, and a happy yeah, Spider-Man. Sorry. <laughs> I mean, kind of in in Spider-Man's like dynamics with his best friends, because because I was going to say Harry. Similarly, it's like Harry and Peter haven't spoken because Harry is still pissed off that he's found out that Peter is Spider-Man. And we've just been sitting on that for a year. But yeah, yeah I love the, the, he's just waited a year to do anything about yeah. it. But the movie opens with Peter saying, people really like me. And I really love the opening shot of like him swinging through the streets and something seems slightly off about it. And then you pan back and it's actually a giant billboard that he's watching himself on because <laughs> New York loves Spider-Man now. Um, which I think is a is a natural progression from the from the train stuff at the end of Spider Man Two. Mm-hmm. Um, it 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 feels like a natural progression, and it sets up Spider Man or Peter particularly for this kind of this hubris, hubristic streak that we're going to see. Um, but while this is going on, the movie then has to set up its three villains and Harry makes complete sense he has been stewing for a year he wants to get vengeance for his father's death he's fat we know from the end of the last film that he discovered all this stuff about his dad so he's just gone right it's taken me a year i figured out how to do it i've given myself the same powers as my dad and now i'm gonna go after peter which is like it it's all set up it's all there from the previous two movies and i agree with you seb Franco is fantastic. I, I love him all the, all the way through this series. It's it's kind of it's the perfect mix of character for James Franco as like or, or James Franco's persona, yeah. which is that he's a bit of a douche, and we know that there are issues with this guy. And that we shouldn't, I, I, I like we shouldn't that be it, totally on board. It but started the out just that there. sort of you know around the time of the first film, and I know obviously he was coming off the back of uh, Freaks and Geeks, but. Even so, in like 2002, I think he was someone who would have been seen as uh, here's a you know young, attractive guy playing the best friend in the film. And then simultaneously with the films, Franco got weirder and weirder, and the character of Harry got weirder and weirder. And yeah, it just it it it, it suited his kind of his own evolution perfectly. What I thought was quite funny watching this was because this is the I think this this must have been the first thing I've seen with him in since I finally watched The Disaster Artist. Um and like there's there's moments where he just practically looks and sounds like he does as Tommy Wiseau in that. Um but yeah, I just think I I, I said on Twitter that I think he feels in this like he is in a different film from everybody else and it's a weirder film than everybody else is in. But he's just having so much fun. And, you know, that bit that that we had as the the sting at the end of the last episode um, that was obviously very heavily memed. And it's one of those that I think, again, people, I think, read that wrongly in the way that they did with the infamous scene that we'll talk about later. In that 
I think people didn't realise that he like he knows exactly what he's doing with that bit of performance and that scene knows what it's doing but people kind of took that as like a bad cringy moment no yeah i i think franco is yeah it's it's a performance he's a weird performer and um i like what he's doing here i like the i like the harry peter dynamic always have and I, do, do you know what I like about it as well? Like you were saying about the kind of the moments of like like almost comic violence that Peter has to exact on Harry. Mm. There is something kind of screwball, slapsticky about this film in general. Does it? It feels like the comedy in the first hour is a lot more overt than it had been, and obviously the sequence we're going to talk about as well. But like that, Raimi's really dialing things up, and I think probably thinking. Still, I'm making a comic book movie. I've got the license to do this kind of stuff. Mm. Uh, but yeah, the 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 moment where Peter takes out Harry is yeah is almost comical, and a lot of the time, I mean that that whole scene that you're talking about in the diner where Harry is like, yeah, Peter, oh god, what's <laughs> happened with you and Mary Jane? Yeah. Well, yeah, but that I mean that's because we're fucking right. <laughs> I'm I'm the guy, Pete. <laughs> it's just it's kind of it's kind of brilliantly mustache twirling. But I think what the what the the balance that's impressive with the Harry stuff is that you never kind of you never turn against him at any point in the mm. film. There's always there's always something slightly pathetic about him. Yeah. It's 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 established in just his misunderstanding of the Peter situation. Like, well, oh, yeah, buddy, is... you're not you're not really you weren't in that loop, so you don't really know what was going on. And I know now you've kind of tried to insert yourself into this narrative, but you're still a step behind and actually you're still not as good as your dad was you're not as good as peter and 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 that is that perfectly captures harry from the comics because that's exactly it you know harry from the comics and you know he's a bit he is a bit kind of smug and and full of himself kind of particularly in the early stuff when when peter goes first first goes to college and you first meet him but throughout throughout the thing of harry being the green goblin it's not that he's decided i am evil um and um you know i i'm going to cause villainy it's i i believe that spider-man who you know i know that peter is spider-man peter is my friend and i love him but when he becomes spider-man i think he turns into a horrible person and he killed my dad and i had a complex relationship with my dad and didn't really like him but now i feel i have to live you know all of that stuff all of that stuff is there in the film they they really get the essence of that character and his relationship but, with Peter and his relationship with Norman, and they kind, really they kind well. of, and they kind of bed in that kind of like slightly pathetic sad sack edge to him at the same time. So even when he is kind of triumphing over Peter mm. with the stuff with Mary Jane, I mean, like he hasn't. He's not the. He's not the guy. He's he kissed Mary Jane and she wasn't into it. And then, and, and even with the when the amnesia stuff's happening, he's kind of like a oh bless him, like <laughs> he's just it's, it, there's there's something just really sad about it. And then obviously, when the the um, the bomb backfires on him, and he has that scar, which I gotta say, like Sam Raimi <laughs> absolutely nails that because there is something in. I mean, it's Cape Early sadness in his eyes kind of moment. <laughs> that, that 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 dead eye is like yeah. when when you first see the reveal of the face. I'm like, oh my god, like he's not. He's gonna have to live forever with. Oh no, 
<laughs> but yeah, I, I, I think Raimi balances that stuff really well. And um, I mean, we can get to the actual conclusion of that um, arc once we get to like talking about the final act. Um, but yeah, it kind of continues that slightly pathetic, but we kind of love him. He's not the villain, is he? He's not the villain at all. <laughs> no, and the point is he get he gets the redemption at the end, which again, you know, Harry Osborn should get as part of his story. And I, you know, it's... I've, I, well, no, we won't go into too much because we'll, we'll get to it at the end and it is one of the few good things about the last half hour or so, but finally having Peter and Harry team up um, to fight is really, really cool and works really well and is really nice it's to have. The first time that Peter has got to team up with anyone, really. This is one of the... One of those few few superhero movies where there is there's no one else. Yeah, I remember watching that in the cinema and being like so pleased with that sequence, just because it was like, "Hey, Spider Man's got a friend." Yeah, mm. <laughs> but can I, I mean, can you think of many other franchises where certainly or superhero movies that have got more than a movie in where there is just literally there's that guy who has powers and no one else. I mean, and super, he won't... Superman, <laughs> right? Um. I'm trying to think. Uh, well, I guess the Reeve Superman. Te- mm. Nah, technically, um, Supergirl is part of that universe. Although they, they don't, they don't meet on screen, but they are. I was going to say they, they don't team up, right? No, but yeah, if if they had got round to making enough films, you might have seen that happen. The point is, is that he's not the only person with those powers in that world. But I mean, even you know that it's rare that yeah, yeah, that you don't see a hero team up. And uh, it, it kind of ties into what I what I was going to say about the other villains, which, so like yeah, in, in the Superman movies, obviously you've got the powers with the the, the villains with similar power sets, you know, um, Zod turning up, whatever. In in the Spider Man movies, in the first two movies, what you have had is scientists who have had a kind of an experiment go wrong. And I just think it feels like a little bit of a leap at the start of this movie. I think the Sandman thing feels like a bit of a leap just because we haven't established any of the stuff that he walks into going in. So, like... <laughs> What do you mean haven't established? There's a sign right on the fence. It says, like, warning particle accelerator or something. But you know the time, the time that we—I I know what you mean. Uh, the time that they, the time that they invest in in um, Willem Dafoe in the first movie and all of the, the kind of the, the work pressures and you know and him running this company and there feels like a lot of setup to get him to that point. And similarly with Doc Ock, and here it's as uh, a science thing happening, and he's walked into it, so he's the Sandman now. And then Venom, Venom is just something that. There is no, there's nothing to kind of pre-establish that idea in these Spider-Man movies that... That, like, hey, there are aliens in space that are going to land on you. Yeah, or, but... Is it, had the, again, is this something that as the cartoons had given us the precedent of the symbiote comes to Earth because of John Jameson's space mission? And we'd had John Jameson in yeah, the previous yeah. film. And I remember there being speculation that that he would have a connection to Venom somehow, and that and that just you know got completely disregarded, and that he wasn't in the third film. But yeah, it's it's very strange that it's just dropped there with no explanation of where it's come from, and it's, well, it's never. Al- it's almost like Raimi explored. went. 
you know, how else can you do Venom? He's just an alien, so he's just got to, like, the way they Either set it up. Or, or Raimi left it in as a deliberate metaphor for how Venom <laughs> for dropped how it on was, him yeah, by the studio. <laughs> that I had not discounted that either. But, I mean, what I was going to say, like, I actually kind of like the Sandman's origin in that it's, it's very sort of 60s classic and it feels like that's that's what Raimi likes about Spider-Man is like he likes the the comic booky silver age stuff mm. and Venom just doesn't fit into that in any way and i think that's part of why the why Raimi sort of struggles with the character is that it just doesn't fit this world i don't know the production process of this and i don't know kind of when the clashes happened internally about bringing venom into it um but I think it's I think it's pretty it's pretty well known that like Raimi obviously he was interested in Vulture uh, for Spider Man Four, but I think he was interested in Vulture as early as this movie. Um, and obviously, there's we there is a point where he is agreed or has been cajoled into using Venom. I remember when during the like earliest production. Like, he was saying things like, I'll never do a Venom movie because I'm just not interested in the character. But the studio was like, everyone else is, so off you go. And I can imagine a version of the script where, and I literally mean this script, where Venom doesn't exist. Because the way it happens is, Venom, the the symbiote lands in Central Park, I'm assuming, um, at the start of the movie. Peter kind of then discovers it and it's like literally in two minutes, Peter's like, oh, what's this thing? Take it into Dr. Connors. He'll have a look at it. And that's the box ticked. We've referenced that this Venom thing is still out there. Don't don't worry about it for another half an hour. Mm-hmm. And then an hour or so into the movie, we then bring in Venom. But for a long time, other than Peter swinging around in the black suit and then having the Venom affected sequence... It feels like there could have been another version of the movie where, like, Peter is just being a dick. That mm-hmm. he's bought it, that he's bought into his hype. That he feels wronged by Mary Jane almost. That like she's broken up with him and he didn't do anything wrong. And actually, he's just going to go out there and live his best life as Spidey. Um, and then you get to the third act, and really, it feels like Venom has been thrown up, th- thrown onto the top of a Sandman final sequence where goblin and goblin and uh spider-man team up to fight sandman because sandman's actually established as a really tricksy villain and at the end he just becomes the kind of the the lump at the bottom that they have to fight past to get to venom um uh, yeah do, i mean do you agree do you think there's a do, do you think that's potentially what happened with the movie I can't imagine. I can't imagine it with any of the other characters. Put it like that. Sandman doesn't feel like he was shoehorned in. Sandman feels like he no. Was Sandman someone... was what Raimi wanted to build the film around. Clearly, yeah. And and who he had to almost pull away from the film to fit in the other stuff. Yeah, I mean, apparently there's a version of this script where Sandman is actually forced into fighting Spider-Man at the end. Like Venom kidnaps his daughter and says, "Like you're gonna." You know, you're going to do what I tell you now. Okay. Which is interesting because I think it it kind of explains why Sandman goes from being this sort of relatively sympathetic figure to suddenly he's just a giant guy like smashing stuff up and wants to kill Spider-Man. To being sympathetic again at the yeah. end. Yeah, and then they're this. like, oh, I forgive you, off you go. And you're like, wait, what, really? 
and like yeah it does it does feel like venom has been re- like has replaced him as the you know the big evil at the end of the film like i can imagine a version of this of that final sequence that ends with uh <laughs> that ends with them essentially agreeing not to fight anymore yeah 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 Either way, I think it ends up being a little bit of a mess, and I, I wonder even if Raimi had if if Raimi had embraced this idea or had been more had forced himself to be a bit more interested in Venom because <laughs> he's real he's definitely not interested in Venom as a concept. I think he's interested in the character of Peter and he's interested in Eddie Brock, but Venom as an entity and any kind of explanation of how or why or i mean because once he once he like bonds with eddie it's just oh eddie's eddie's proper evil now and has the power to fight mm. spider-man and it forget about that, the rest i mean i was going to come to it later but it is it is weird that he's so much more powerful as venom and in, and in the comics the point is that eddie brock is a big strong muscular guy and so <laughs> venom is different when he's with him than with spider-man whereas in this he's a small guy like peter parker so why is venom so much more of a threat than than when he was with peter i don't know but um, I, I was just you, gonna sorry i, just I, just, wanted, I to, wanted to can i ask a question about venom because okay I, but then i, I want to go back onto sandman okay. <laughs> but I've, I've never i've never really got this why does venom look like spider-man because Oh man, have we have we not done an explanation of where Venom comes from originally? I don't know. Oh, I, James, I, I, I'll let you take it. This should have been the explainer concept, except <laughs> there there is something you didn't know about. Okay, Venom. I mean, tell me tell me if you feel like you've heard any of this. But where Venom comes from is, do you know the crossover Secret Wars? Not the Jonathan Hickman one. No, is that the one? Is is that the one where Spider Man taught the Beyonder how to do a poo? I think that is Secret Wars 2. Yeah, okay. In Secret Wars 1, basically, to sell action figures, the the Beyonder gets all of the Marvel heroes and villains, plonks them on one planet that he's created and yes, makes them fight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And in that story, like, what they did was everyone in their own comics, like, disappeared, reappeared, having been on Battleworld, which is what the planet was called, um, mm. and stuff had changed. So what happened was Spider-Man disappeared in his own comic then reappeared wearing a black suit. And in right, Secret okay. Wars, his costume, like, which fills in the gap between those appearance and disappearance, uh, disappearance and reappearance, his suit gets shredded on Battleworld, and he essentially goes to a machine and says, like, give me a new suit. And so he gets the black costume out of it. And then he wears the black costume for years until someone decides that i forget the exact writer who decided uh, it. see i can tell you this because I, I was i was going to tell you some even more interesting backstory about where this all came from <laughs> right but tell so, us the writer first okay so the writer is uh, tom defalco of course okay yeah yeah so tom defalco decides actually the suit is alive and making you know it's a symbiote and it's making spider-man act irrationally and aggressively he gets rid of the costume, goes back to his original clothes, and Eddie Brock comes into possession of the suit, which, when he wears it, looks like it did when Spider-Man was wearing it. And that's why so, Venom looks like Spider-Man. Yeah. And so at what point do they decide that actually it's like a... Or do they not in the comics? Is it always just a Spider-Man suit that someone puts on? It's originally... Originally, it was just a suit. Tom DeFalco, as said just revealed was the guy who went actually no it's an alien yeah 
because like spider-man just found it in a machine basically yeah so it, and where so where it comes from is it was well so the original idea of giving spider-man a black costume right um there was a competition that marvel did for writers and artists and a guy called randy Schuler submitted a drawing of a, a black and red spider-man costume and marvel bought it off him um because they they were like oh that's a really good idea let's give spider-man a black costume so jim shooter uh got mike zek to design that as the black and white one that was introduced in secret wars um and roger stern in amazing spider-man because i don't think secret wars said anything about what the costume could do other than that just he finds it and suddenly it's it's all over him and it was in spider it was in amazing spider-man that roger stern uh came up with the concept that it was like a self-repairing costume but i say roger stern came up with it roger stern borrowed that concept from something that john byrne was going to do with iron fist so (laughs) john byrne had actually abandoned a concept for iron fist that iron fist would get this kind of magical technological self-repairing costume didn't use it so roger stern who's mates with john byrne borrowed that off him and used it in spider-man and then tom defalco came up with the symbiote thing and then it was david michelini who actually turned it into venom in because then he was writing amazing spider-man it's worth it's worth pointing out spider-man did have a black suit that looked like venom because after he got rid of the symbiote he he kept the black yeah because he liked he liked the design so he kept the black suit for a while and then didn't he go back to the red one? Because so, so he still had the black suit when Venom came along, but Venom, like in his first appearance, like kidnaps Mary Jane, doesn't he? So Peter yeah. changes it, back yeah, to the red and blue costume because so the, she... the black costume freaks her out. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I've so... just been singing the Men in Black Two theme tune for the last <laughs> two minutes. <laughs> Come on, look, look, I'm sorry, but we have just nicely gone back to what the original concept of this podcast was supposed to be all about, and we've. Can I, I just. I, I still, I still don't understand though why Venom concept, and because doesn't Carnage looks like Spider Man as well? Why does every? No, why no, no. Carnage, Carnage look? looks like Venom. That's, yeah, yes, Carnage that's is an offshoot of Venom. <laughs> and so, in the, but in this movie. And, like, I knew very little of Venom other than, like, what the cartoon character looked like before this movie. Mm-hmm. I, I, like, there's no, there's no reason why Venom, when he become when he goes, when he bonds with Eddie, should look like well, Spider-Man. Well, he's taken the shape of Spider-Man's costume. It doesn't explain why he has the white spider with the large legs on the front of him when that wasn't a part of the costume and i think that's really something that this film gets wrong is to just make the black costume just a black version of the suit and not put any more of the design on it that's that's a that's a missed opportunity especially because you only ever really see spider-man in it at night against black backgrounds and it's like the thing about the black costume is it's black and the thing about the night sky is it's black <laughs> um can i ask you, so I, I, again i couldn't i couldn't figure this out on rewatch did eddie have weird teeth before venom takes him over no no so what what's that about yeah well this is again this comes back to the the movie offers no explanation for why venom kind of moves on to this more advanced form is Why it is just Venom? that that Eddie is more evil, so Venom responds to him better? Um, I don't. But know. Eddie's not more evil; he's just a dick. He's just a dick. Yeah, I was going to um, say it's arguable whether he's more evil. He's certainly a bigger plagiarist. I don't know how you know how not plagiarist. 
fraudster. <laughs> he is, yeah. But yeah, this is the and it's almost kind of disappointing actually that because this is when Peter's in full dick mode that he like it's almost a shame that he's right. Like that the, the, the photo is fake. Yeah. It would be better if the photo wasn't faked and that he had actually done an injustice mm-hmm. to Eddie. Um, but then I maybe mean, they he's can't, definitely sort of. he's definitely not right in some of the other stuff. He's yeah. definitely not right with all the Mary Jane stuff, which we'll get to yeah. in a minute. But um, Seb, you were going to tell us about Sam. I did. I wanted to say something about Sam. I mean, we have moved on a little bit from it, but let's pull back to. It. No, what I want to say about Sam was so we because we talked about how obviously Venom is the element that's shoehorned in and like kind of at the expense of the screen time of the Sandman storyline that that I think it's clear that Raimi is is probably more interested in. I still think though. If you take Venom out of this film, and bearing in mind that we don't consider Harry the villain, I don't think you've got enough of a story with Sandman. I think if you try to imagine that Sandman storyline expanded over the course of the film, I think what you've got is another villain that isn't really a villain and is kind of sympathetic and has, you know, understandable motives. And you're basically doing Dr. Octopus again. And I'm just not sure. I like what you get of him in this film. And I I really like Thomas Hayden Church's performance as him. But I do think the movie needs something else. And I'm not sure that something else is necessarily Venom. But I think in order to actually no. have a villain at the end that you can root against, no, because it, because I it's Peter. It needs yeah, else. exactly. Yeah, it's Peter's because... Peter's behavior as the villain. Like that's what he. Like that's why when he. But I just think when you're thinking about the, your big fight scene at the end. Well, I no, the climax he... is him fighting fighting Sandman, and you're thinking like, well, don't beat up this guy. He's just looking out for his kid. Like it's America's mm. healthcare system, which is. I the think villain. you. I think you do. You do something along the lines of, you don't give Sandman quite the sympathetic entrance that you give him. You introduce him as the villain. We'll talk about it in a minute. I, an element of the film that I don't like, but I think an element that was always there and is is Sam Raimi's idea completely is that Sandman was the person actually responsible for Uncle Ben's death. And, mm. Well, we'll get to it. Uh, but I think that I was always... The film th- plays it badly, but I don't like it. <laughs> and, and, the, and so that element is there... So you've got a Sandman who is set up as a bad guy who has escaped prison, who is the person who was probably responsible for Uncle Ben's death in the first place. Meanwhile, Spider-Man is becoming more and more of a dick. He is fighting with Harry. He is um, he's losing kind of uh, his relationship with MJ and is completely buying into his own hype. And then you kind of set him on the vengeance path and you and you have to then your kind of your arc is does peter turn back to the good side when confronted with the murderer of uncle ben because i think conceptually conceptually the idea that peter is faced with the guy who is responsible for starting all this and saying can you ultimately forgive that guy as well? Um, can you check yourself to to acknowledge that? Um, whilst all the stuff with Harry is going on, and whilst you, whilst his kind of private life is in disarray, um, I, I think there's something interesting about that, and I think that a Spider-Man movie, I, because I mean, a lot of the time, I mean, the Doc Doc Ock stuff is backgrounded a lot in Spider-Man too. Doc Ock pops up here and there. But a lot of it is just Peter. 
Um, I, I think it could have worked. I don't... I, I, but similarly, Seb, I don't disagree that you could have had this same amount of villains and made this movie work. Yeah, you just needed the other villain to be one that Sam Raimi was actually remotely interested in. <laughs> like I mean, the Vulture. It, it's kind of weird. It's sort of... It's weird how badly he does Venom because he's clearly got an idea for how to do Venom. But they they don't really spend enough time on the idea that the black suit is making Peter more of a dick. Apparently there's this alternate cut, which we only found about, or I only discovered existed today, called the editor's cut. Which has, apparently, it's got more scenes of Spider-Man sort of resisting the suit and then giving into it, and then, you know, it it plays with the idea of this as a kind of, you know, addictive thing that he he wants to wants to keep going back to because it's making him stronger and more powerful. And it works and it works as the metaphor for the rest of the movie. This this kind of this kind of this kind of adulation that Spider-Man is getting from all corners now which he had lacked for the first time. Yeah. Uh, lacked, lacked in the previous movies and now he is kind of going Yeah, I am great and like and I I know everything that there is to know about this superhero business and yeah, feed me all of that stuff like I I want more of it. I want to, I want to know how awesome I am and just become completely oblivious of those people around him. Yeah. And Venom <laughs> Venom sh- and I think in the in that's in the sequence that we're going to probably talk about in a second. It does a good job of like showing this is the Peter from before only amplified. <laughs> I mean the thing the thing that bothered me a lot actually about the introduction of the suit was that like okay so like he does that thing where he passes out in bed and it it crawls onto him and he wakes up and he's in the suit and then he goes out testing it and you know it reveals okay it amplifies his powers it makes him stronger and then the next time we see it he's taking it out of a suitcase where he's hidden it and it's like we don't we don't see the process of him like rejecting that idea or thinking oh maybe that's a bit dangerous it's just he has it and then it's it's put away and we don't even see him do that. Like it, it sort of botches these really key moments of storytelling that would have kind of created this narrative around why the suit is bad and and why we should worry if Eddie gets hold of it. But it's fun when he dances down the street, right, guys? Yes. <laughs> and I would defend this se- sequence for like just I don't understand anyone who can watch it and not find it absolutely hilarious. It's it's people who don't realise that it's intentionally funny. Well, no, I've seen people saying like, oh, they're trying to make us laugh in a really cringy way. And it's like, you're not supposed to be laughing at what Peter's doing. You're supposed to be laughing at the expressions of everyone around him. Yeah. And I, do you know what? I No, I, I get it. I do totally get it. And I will say I don't love this sequence as much as you guys do. I it kind of it makes it makes me laugh kind of the audacity of the sequence and I and I think it's fun. But I can understand why if you are like three movies into this franchise and being like oh this character like this character's really cool. Oh and my god for a set like and cuz we get the venom is bad, but the black suit is cool and spider a more powerful spider-man in that black suit is cool and you're like oh cool hit spider-man now what is cool hit P- peter parker gonna look like and then that <laughs> is what sam look, raimi gives you he's gonna look like win butler <laughs> <laughs> he's he's gonna look like someone who has got emo wrong 
<laughs> this is the thing. <laughs> the thing I like though is that that's exactly what Peter Parker the nerd would think is cool. That's yeah, and he just gets it so good, wrong. That's why it's that funny. He thinks it's yeah. cool. He thinks like a cool person would just be dancing in the street. But ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Actually, he's just being a dick. And like, the it's... Like, he's doing, like, the finger guns at the women, and they, like, you just see the expressions of, like, contempt and disgust towards him. And, like, he doesn't notice. I just, it cracks me up so much. The the dancing when he comes out of the, when he comes <laughs> yeah. out of the shop with the new outfit yeah, on. Yeah, that's it's just brilliant. A, it's, ex- it is. it's exactly what, like, a nerd with no social skills would think is cool. Yeah. And that's why it's so funny. And it's like anyone who doesn't get that, who doesn't find it funny... It's just missing the point of the character. I I can still see it. <laughs> I can still understand. Thing, it, I, like it juxtaposes so well with the the raindrops keep falling on my head sequence from Spider Man Two as well. It's like the yeah. dark mirror of it. It's it's just perfect. But you guys are less on board with the scene inside the the jazz club. Inside the jazz club. I the- I find that harder to watch because it's even more cringy but I still think it succeeds at what it's trying to do which is to be incredibly cringy but I just think it's harder to watch I mean, because it's more cringy I, I, again I don't think that scene is unintentionally being bad for me, for me the problem with that scene is that everyone around Peter also buys into like oh this really cool guy is dancing and they're all like cheering and applauding him like mm. the idea, the fundamental idea of him bringing Gwen Stacy to a jazz club to like rub MJ's face in it, like obviously, that's a terrible thing for Peter Parker to do, but the execution of it, where everyone is on his side, just it doesn't sit right for me. It's like it's too a step beyond reality. Like if he's dancing like a dickhead in the street and people are looking like. Yeah, they, they should all have the same reaction as the people yeah. in the street do. And but when, the kind of when he's doing Gwen it, sort of does as well. Yeah, when yeah. he's doing it in the jazz club and they're all clapping and cheering and it's like, no, that that wouldn't happen. Uh, do you know what? I'm willing to give the movie the leap of when you see someone doing stupid and ridiculous in a nightclub and you've had a couple of drinks, you're like, oh my God, <laughs> look at this guy. <laughs> What's going on over here? Let's encourage him. Let's let's encourage him so he'll do it some more. <laughs> um, I also, I just, lo- I love the, the, it's the, it's a second of the movie when Peter says, now dig this. <laughs> 
it's just the other, it's just uh, that entire sequence encapsulated for me the the other thing about the um the the kind of the the not the jazz club dance sequence but the the peter being a douche sequence is that um you get the bit with him flirting with betty brandt which is something ah, that's that so these good. movies should have had more of <laughs> the films had realized that what they had in elizabeth banks by this point yeah, but and while she enough. has a bit she has a very minor role, but they make the most of her that, in the sequences she's that in. That first Jonah scene, it's like so, the, the so fact good. that she, that actually she almost manages, not quite, but almost manages to steal the scene off. Yeah, Jake, off, uh, mostly J.K. off, Simmons. mostly off screen, and she's still yeah. like hilarious. But the, but just yeah, that 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 patter between the two of them, and obviously he's just as magnificent as he always is. Like, in this one, slightly going a bit over the top with it, but it doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter because J. Jonah Jameson is always over the top. Like, that's the point. I found myself, while watching this, just just wishing that we could find a way... And we can't because the current films don't have that (laughs) Peter Parker setup. But to find a way to get J.K. Simmons to play Chips Darsky's Mm -hmm. Jonah Jameson and what's been done Uh, with Jonah recently in the comics and his new relationship with Peter. I know, It just works so perfectly. And I I just, when I read the comics with him in, I'm still reading it in J.K. Simmons' Yeah, I mean, Joe, just to to tell you, like the circumstance in the Marvel Universe at the moment is that Jameson knows that Peter Parker is Spider-Man and has... Like done essentially a giant one eighty and become Peter's like mentor, and he's trying wow. to, trying to help him fight crime. And it is so it's such but, good but fun. he's trying to help him fight crime and getting angry at him for like not doing it quickly yeah. enough and that kind of thing, <laughs> and and still arguing with him like while it like he's still angry and bitter about everything that happened in the past while being supportive. Oh, and re- and in recognition of the fact that he is actually a hero and that he sees him as this kind of surrogate son sort of figure, mm. um, yeah, it's that just, is fun. It's 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 one of those things that you don't know how long it'll last and how sustainable it'll be. But at the moment, as a setup and as a, a for you know to to get good character work out of it, it's yeah. Just there's a brilliant. there's a recent issue as well, which is about young Jameson, and it just makes me want to oh, see that yeah. film. <laughs> And it's like yeah, that's the, the... Is it, is it, it was that the annual, the Spectacular Spider-Man annual? Yeah, possibly. Um, that just yeah it jumps through. <laughs> shows him as a young shows points. him as a young newsman. And it's it great. and it and it it fills in one of the longest standing Spider-Man continuity plot holes of if Peter Parker was a terrible such a terrible photographer, why did Jonah buy his pictures in the first place? <laughs> and the answer is is that he did his research on Peter and read a news story about his uncle Ben being killed and decided to buy his photos to give him a leg up ah oh, that's yeah. nice really but sweet. yeah there's like basically jk simmons being this good yeah. should have been in the film more if he'd been in the film more it would have been a better movie you could say that about any movie ever true true i think that's probably why i like spider-man 2 <laughs> like the best thing about spider-man 2 is that he's in it so much yeah and he has the like cancel the flowers God, would you not have loved to see this this J. Jonah Jameson absolutely berate the Andrew Garfield Spider-Man <laughs> and be on his Just and be completely on his side? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> anyway, we talked about Elizabeth Banks briefly there, who is uh, really fun in the scenes that she's in. Uh, but I do kind of want to speak about the the women of this film. We'll talk about MJ a bit in a minute, but let's start with Gwen Stacy who, uh, played by Bryce Dallas Howard here, of course, so you've got um, the kind of ongoing tradition of hiring 
people <laughs> best known for having red hair as blondes and yeah, people yeah. best known for having blonde hair as redheads in the Spider-Man movies. Um, Gwen Stacy, my hot take about this movie, one of them used to be, well, that's that you cut out a villain and you also cut out a love interest because what does Gwen Stacy add? I think that's that. I, I'm not sure I agree with that now. I think it's just you kind of feel like because her name is Gwen Stacy, that she is underused. But she's a she's a plot device in in this much bigger movie, isn't she? She's not really she's not really there to be Gwen Stacy. Gwen Stacy. She's there to be another woman. And I think actually the fact that it's Gwen Stacy kind of helps the film not lean into some like shitty female stereotypes like the Gwen Stacy character could very easily be this kind of siren who is trying to seduce Peter away from MJ and that she could be really gunning for that kiss at the at the Spider-Man day and she could be egging Peter on in the jazz club um but she's not she's just kind of a girl who gets caught up in his bullshit mm-hmm. and it, and in Eddie's bullshit because like <laughs> like how the film sets Eddie Eddie walks in and goes oh hi by the way I'm dating your daughter and then and then actually we find out 20 minutes later no no yeah. that's just something yeah. that Eddie said they had one date yeah yeah I I mean yeah she's definitely not developed enough but I do I do quite like her in this, and yeah, I like that they don't go down the obvious route. I also think it's weird that that both members of the Stacey family are in this film, and neither of them get killed off. <laughs> um, I, I actually, I was, I had a bit of a Mandela effect with this film, and could have sworn I remembered that Captain Stacey does get killed off in it, and was surprised that he doesn't. Um, it's also weird that, like, obviously he disappears because he's not really that relevant to the film. But after the jazz club scene. Gwen, I think, disappears from the film completely, except to be there at Harry's funeral at the end. Lots of lots of random people at Harry's Harry. funeral. Yeah, um, but <laughs> yeah, it's just like the the film just has no use for her after that point, um, which which is a shame because I think I think there's enough there that you could do more with her. I mean, again, if you know if these films had continued. I would have liked uh, yeah. to have seen something like the setup of those the the later part of the the the, the Ditko sixties comics where Peter has this group of friends around him and it's not that she's a competing love interest. I mean, it, it, <laughs> it's it, the it, it is. Yeah, the it's, yeah it is. The, yeah, and it's the kind of the flip of what the MJ Gwen setup was originally, which is that I mean, initially. Gwen's just there as a friend and is kind of there with Harry. Then Gwen becomes a love interest, and MJ is a background friend character who then goes on to become a love interest. And the film, these films, did kind of flip that the other way round. But yeah, I would have liked the idea of her just being a, a friend, supporting character, a bit like Betty is. Really, I mean, this the thing um, is, this um, this franchise really plays up the idea that Pete and Pete and MJ are like the couple, and they they are meant to be together. Yeah, and that as a take on spider-man is something i find slightly less interesting than <laughs> than spider-man as a soap opera and like i say that even as someone who started reading the comics when they were married and you know i yeah, had Sp- spider-man as a soap opera doesn't work when you're adapting feature films well true but i and- you know i kind of i like the idea that there's no like one certain relationship that spider-man should be in yeah. Like, he ha- but, he hasn't got a Lois Lane. But as we've discussed on previous podcasts, 
Kirsten Dunst is fantastic, and <laughs> Peter, Peter and MJ are, are great. <laughs> this is, to be fair, right? This is the first film where I actually agree with you on that, because I think Kirsten Dunst plays it so well, like the the vulnerability of MJ and the the way she's being ignored by Peter. She's great. Yeah, she is. In the previous two, no. In this one, yes. Like every moment she's on screen, I'm like, actually, I see where Joe was coming from. Just the the palpable hurt from her character Mm -hmm. in the first act, where like life is beating her up, and this guy that was her rock and that she had risked so much to be with is completely oblivious to all of this. It's the bits where he keeps going like, oh, I know what you mean. Like, when I'm Spider-Man and you're just like, <laughs> those, oh, no, just ask her how she is. <laughs> don't don't tell her how she is. And it's it's it kind of starts off in a, in a recognisable place where uh, he's like going to her, look, no, th- this is not as bad as you think. It's going to be okay. It's going to be fine. And she turns around and she goes, yeah, but let me feel... <laughs> let me feel the emotions that I'm feeling right now. And he goes, ah, right, okay, yes, I get it. But then it's clear that he doesn't and the film kind of escalates from there. But yeah, I, I just think Dunst is, is really fantastic. And I love the... I, I mean, we we obviously talked a lot about this in our first Spider-Man podcast, but the the ultimate betrayal, Sam Raimi understands this, the ultimate betrayal of that character is to take the iconic moment of mm. their relationship and give it to someone else. Because upside down kisses, they're a <laughs> Peter and MJ thing. Yeah. I, I, I like that. I like the way that, that, that that's played. Um, and yeah, you know, kind of her. I'm, I'm, I'm not there with James in terms of this film winning me round to Kirsten Dunster's MJ. I still find her quite irritating for I mean, most of it, it but more, her reaction there is is really good and, and very sympathetic and uh, I, like i still relatable. i still don't think she's a good mj i think she's just in this film she's a good character like she's not any mj that i recognize but well no but that's not that's yeah never i mean that's always been, been the problem argument. but in yeah. this one on her on her own terms i can see you know i can see it working can I just ask, what's, what, what do you guys think of... I'm not sure if we discussed this. What do you guys think of Kirsten Dunst outside of the outside of this franchise? You know, I'm not I'm sure not I've seen fan. her in anything. Uh, I One of my favourite films is Eternal Sunshine, and I find her irritating in that oh, as well. Oh, yeah. Mm. I mean, mm. she's kind of meant to be. Um, yeah, I haven't seen much else. I mean, I haven't, I've never seen, like... I've never seen Bring It On, which apparently she's very good in. But. I was going to say, I don't have strong feelings about her in anything else. Do I need to do this? Recently, James revealed that like he was like, oh, Anne Hathaway finally gets to be great in Ocean's 8. And I was like, <laughs> well, have you have you seen these other five uh, movies where Anne Hathaway is great? Do I need to do that for Kirsten Dunst now? Go I mean, then. remind me what she's in that's good. Okay. Uh, well, so we can, we can go with her child performances... So she was in stuff like Jumanji. Small Soldiers, very underrated. Um, uh, Bring It On, she's great in. Um, She is fantastic in Marie Antoinette. Um, She is really great in Melancholia. Um, She's good in Bachelorette. Um, Haven't seen Hidden Figures. Um, I mean, I, I, I... I'm obviously. I think I'm predisposed to like her. I like her in most stuff that I see her in. 
Oh, Divergent Suicides, that's another one. Um, I, I, yeah, I, I feel like I, I automatically like Kirsten Dunst and like, she has, <laughs> yeah. she, she, she has to go. That it's not it, when she turns up in a movie, something has to go wrong for me to think she's bad, rather than her having to win me round. Yeah, I think for me the problem is I always just see like, oh, there's not MJ, which is not an issue for me because as I've previously explained, this is MJ for me. Yeah, <laughs> this is this is Peter and this is MJ and everyone else is, uh, you know, just that they, they are compared to this original text. <laughs> um let's let's uh let's carry on talking about the women in this movie um aunt may gets short shrift <laughs> comparatively um there's just not really she, a place for her i i i feel like peter needed a good aunt may pep talk in this movie <laughs> it feels like something that's required um someone who is fantastic though is ursula <laughs> Do you know, it's only recently that I realised about their name being Ditkovich. Ah, come on. (laughs) (laughs) Unless we discussed it on the Spider-Man 2 episode, which we might have done, and then I forgot about it. Um, She's such a sweet character in that she is clearly, and has been from the moment she was introduced, kind of besotted with Peter, but she is besotted with him... To the extent that she's so happy at the idea of him and MJ maybe rekindling things. <laughs> it's it's such a sweet character trait. And it's really sad when he's being in his dick venom mode and kind of trampling. What's she doing? She's holding bring, like the yeah, plate of bringing cookies, him cookies up. And, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he's like, do you have any with raisins or whatever? Yeah. But I just... I, I, I It's weird I, though, because like... The the idea of like Peter having a, a landlord who he has to, you know, dodge for rent, like that's a really classic Spider Man idea. Mm. But then checking in the daughter, like that's it's all Raimi and I don't understand really where it came from or why like I remember being baffled at her inclusion in Spider Man too, and they kind of expand on her a lot in this one that makes it a bit more obvious what they're doing with her. But even so, it's such a it's a strange original character to add to the mm. film when you've got this huge mythos with so many existing characters. I think I think you're right, but I think that's a question for Spider-Man 2. I think when Spider-Man 2 has introduced the two of them, then in Spider-Man 3, they are familiar established parts of this movie's universe, like uh, Jonah's assistant played by Ted Raimi. So I I think it's less weird then. Um, I also like that it's, you know, in the last film, you've had Ditkovich as this kind of unsympathetic just asking him for the rent all the time and then when peter snaps at him his reaction isn't to fight back but is like oh you know he's he's a good kid there's obviously something wrong and it's like oh Mm. so he's not just chasing him for rent because he's a dick who wants money he's it's become a game to him sort of thing um james James put on um James put on Twitter after we watched this is this the last time i will ever watch (laughs) spider-man 3 yes or no how many times do you guys think you've watched it? I must have watched this film five, six, seven times. Oh, not yeah. I must have done. I think I think probably this is about my fifth or sixth. I've definitely watched the Spider-Man trilogy through three or four times because I'm like, well, I've got the box set out. I've watched the first two. Why not? Um, I watched it a few years ago, like out of curiosity. Like, I wonder if I'd like... I remember thinking this and this and obviously watching it again now. 
and I can see myself watching it again. And it it comes down to moments like that that we just talked about. That this isn't a bad movie. It is kind of crippled in certain places and and has bad stuff in it. But I I never I, I'm never it's long as well, by the way. Two hours nineteen <laughs> minutes. Is, yeah, longer than a thought. By, by the way, there is no Spider Man movie under two hours. Come on, guys. It's <laughs> Spider-Man. <laughs> Give us a one hour 40 movie. Homecoming 2, I'm looking at you. Um, but, um, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm not bored. I kind of, I enjoy the characters. I enjoy a lot of the moments. It doesn't work. But even when it doesn't work, there are Raimi bits and pieces that I do like. And the I think the craft is still, uh, aside from when, well, we can talk about the last 20 minutes. <laughs> I was but about like, to say, up until the very climax. I was, I was sat there listening. I was thinking, like, um, I was like, do you know what? I really I really enjoy Christopher Young's score to this. I, I enjoyed that, like, he he's obviously taking a Danny Elfman score. And I love that when Venom is in, like, full pomp, or when Spider-Man has become taken over by the symbiote, the score has kind of become Danny Elfman's Batman for a few minutes. <laughs> Um, I just find myself enjoying lots of different individual aspects of this, so I can't hate it. I can't. It's it's not a good movie, but I will undoubtedly watch this movie again. <laughs> I mean, I, I, yeah, I, I I think this is only maybe about like the third or maybe fourth. I probably watched it a couple of times not so long after it came out, but um, it's definitely I've the not first time it in about anywhere near as much as the others. It's definitely the first time I've watched it in about six or seven years. Mm. I'm not going to watch Suicide Squad three or four times. <laughs> you know, it's not that kind of bad movie. Well, no, it's not a bad movie. I think is the I think is the takeaway. I I think I think it's a very firmly like three star. It does it does feel like it's about like two weeks of reshoots away from being a good movie. Like there's just some things that could have been patched that would have pulled it a bit more together. Like it's never going to be Spider Man one or two. But it could have been better than this with a with a, only a little more work. Okay, uh, let's have um, a chat about the I think the controversial element of this film that I don't think any of us probably like, but is is definitely not one of those things that you can explain away with like, oh well, it was forced into the movie or it doesn't work because of this. I think it was a fundamental thing that Sam Raimi wanted in the movie, and that was that. Um, what's his name? Flint Marco. Sandman. Flint Marco is the thug who was actually responsible for the death <sighs> of Uncle Ben. Um, I don't like this just on its surface because it feels like such an obvious retcon. Mm-hmm. And it fe- and it feel like I, I I can feel the strain of the storytelling when you te- when it when I'm being told that. And I remember watching this movie for the first time and going, No, he didn't. <laughs> yeah, we saw he it. He didn't though, and I, and I felt like I, I felt like I was going to get to the point in the film where they revealed to me, yeah, no, that so it was that guy all along, and the reason why we've been doing this is because of twist, um, and it and it doesn't come. It's just it's just that is the new, that's the yeah. new normal. It is. Now, it didn't know, happen the way we you imagined it, but it did happen. I don't know uh, from 
like comic book perspective because I know a lot of people um, have you know and I think Seb you've made this argument recently uh, have the take on Batman that like Batman's killer kind of should be anonymous and should be a nobody and kind of even being able to solve that kind of takes something away from the concept of Batman is there anything like that around Uncle Ben does it matter who killed what, who killed Uncle well, Ben does it, it does it change anything for Spider-Man because what matters is it has to be the guy who Peter didn't stop that's the that's the mm. key thing Whereas, yeah, with Batman, you know, I think it has to be a random guy, not somebody with a previous connection. They have had him pop up. Well, not him so much uh, as uh, in the 90s when um, uh, post-Clone Saga, when (laughs) Ben Riley was Spider-Man and he met a girl called Jessica... And it turned out that she was the daughter of the burglar. Right, okay. Well, no, they have done the story with the killer, right? Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turn to Wikipedia on this. <laughs> okay, well, as uh, while you're doing that, do, are you guys all on the same page that in the context of this movie franchise, I'm not sure it matters that it wasn't the guy that Peter stopped because... It, Peter still Peter still failed to stop a guy and Uncle Ben then died and he made that connection and it chimed with Peter's it chimed with Uncle Ben's words of power and responsibility he becomes Spider-Man he is this guy this doesn't undo that for me it just feels it just feels like I, I just don't believe it I just never believe it it's and just not I, necessary. The film doesn't do anything with it, I think. It just gives it, you that scene at the end about forgiving him, but... It sets Peter more explicitly into... Vengeance mode. Yes, and and I am going to be a complete and utter arsehole. And so that is the kind of stuff that leads... I mean, you could argue that you can do this with just Venom. I think it is more powerful if you do it with just Sandman. Um, but like throwing the throwing the bomb back at Harry, being the dick to Mary Jane, um, and, and like the first Sandman fight, just absolutely like it, having a different type of fight where Peter is flat out going out to try and kill the villain. Um, so I think I think there is I I understand what Raimi's trying to do. I completely understand what Raimi's trying to do. I just don't like the way he does it. Okay, um, I'm just going to jump back in. So, Amazing Sp- Amazing Spider-Man 200. Um, Spider-Man tracks and confronts the burglar to whom he reveals his true identity as Ben Parker's nephew, believing that Spider-Man is about to kill him as revenge for murdering Ben. The burglar suffers a fear-induced heart attack and dies. So, yeah, that, that's the story I remember. Um, and they sort of do a version of that in the first movie where Spider-Man, like, corners the guy in a warehouse and he falls out and dies. And they even they reference it in this film where he's like, "Hey, I told you what happened there. He fell." Doesn't that happen? That that does happen with the with the original villain, doesn't it? He falls out the window. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that's mm. the yeah. that's in the original movie, and yeah. it's a reference to this storyline from Amazing Spider-Man two hundred, where he he meets the guy and you know basically yeah. is indirectly responsible for him dying. Yeah. 
I think that's the other thing as well. It feels like Peter grappled with all of that stuff in the first movie and in a much more interesting way. Um, that I kind of, I kind of, I, you don't need to reopen that book. I would like, I would much like, I, as much as I don't want to like say kill a character off to motivate Peter to do that, but like have something happen in this movie that sets Peter on that path. <laughs> have all, have all of the turmoil in Peter's personal life with Harry and with MJ and then have another thing that tips him over the edge. Maybe Eddie does get the best of him. And or or maybe like Spider Man is framed for something he didn't do or I don't know it feel it just feels like storytelling wise there are things that you can that you can do that you can push those same buttons and keep the audience on your side while you're doing it and I think that's the for me that's the one kind of really integral structural thing that that I don't buy and also because of the way that the movie then kind of reorients around Venom and we lose Sandman we kind of also lose that and it just becomes Peter is a dick rather than Peter is on this path from vengeance to forgiveness mm. and so we lo- so we also lose the arc so it ultimately to come back to Seb's argument it doesn't it doesn't give you anything because you lose the arc yeah I it's just it's I think what you're right in that it's so obviously an insert that it just becomes distracting. Because you're waiting for for the film to go, I actually know that's not what happened, but instead it just sort of... Yeah, it, well, it what, peters what out film, and it doesn't, does, it doesn't reveal instead of going, uh, Instead of going, oh no, actually, this that's not what happened, it goes, oh no, well actually, it, my daughter. Yeah, it did happen, but it happened in a slightly less... Uh, aggressive I, way than I, you imagined like i just... killed your uncle in a cool way it's, <laughs> it's don't worry about it <laughs> we can still be friends right well, like it, um, it leaves let's... it sort of ambiguous as to whether he actually fired the gun or whether it was his friend who you know i'm not sure it's ambiguous I no think yeah it's true yeah it's not ambiguous yeah he nudges off. him and he yeah. the gun goes off because he's shocked but mm. it's like i didn't mean to kill him it's like well yeah we have a crime for that Okay, let's talk about the the point from which I think the film kind of entirely goes off the rails. <laughs> so we have the kind of the repositioning of the plot where Harry's memory is back. He's turned on Peter. He's forced the breakup. Um, and Peter and Harry have had their Venom fight where Peter disfigures Harry. Um, and... Peter then finally tries to get rid of Venom, manages to in the clock tower, and it it uh, bonds with Eddie Brock instead. And then Eddie pretty much immediately goes and finds Sandman and says, hey, we both want to kill Spider-Man. Which, does Sandman want to kill Spider-Man? I guess he's just... <laughs> he's He saw that he sprayed him with water and made him... and made him go away. I guess... I guess... Well, I guess Sandman is trying to get the money for his daughter yeah, and Spider-Man is... and Spider-Man's in the way. Also, Spider-Man is really, really brutal to him because Spider-Man fights him in the black suit in that, yeah. that super suit. Which, by the way, actually, can I just... This was something that struck me while, while watching that sequence that hadn't really occurred to me before. Firstly, the CGI throughout that scene is really, really bad. Um, 
not the bit where he's holding him against the train and he's disintegrating. That bit's pretty good, but the rest of it is pretty shoddy. Mm. Where is this scene taking place? Because it seems to be taking place in a massive cavern where lots of train lines all crisscross above each other without any proper big supporting things, but just like <laughs> rails with nothing underneath them suspended in midair. And there are trains passing through on every single line constantly. It's bizarre. Yeah. Can I just say on the on the Sandman CGI point, I think the CGI looks dated, but I like what Raimi is doing with what he's got. I think I, I, first, like, I like the general the look first of Sandman sequence. And how Sandman's done. It's just more that fight. There's a lot of yeah. movement and a lot of just really kind of green screeny stuff and th- and bad. In fairness, CG in fairness, stuff. I think this is from the era when, like. CG looked okay on cinema screens, but as soon as you put it on a TV, it became mm. clear enough to go. Like, there was... With the reduced blur, it suddenly becomes really obviously ropey. I don't I don't remember it being this bad in the movie. I like the execution of Sandman. I like the first sequence where he turns... Uh, where he kind of turns from human into sand. I love that sequence where he is reconstituting for the first time and mm. reaching out for the locket and the kind of the the emotion that I was you get say, it's from a really, just that CGI sound. It's a really emotional and sympathetic sequence of him, like the bit where mm. he puts his hand on the locket and it just goes through it. And really, uh, and Raimi really takes the time for a, for a quiet scene there to to get into the. <laughs> yeah, it's almost like it, he actually cares about this villain. <laughs> yes um and and then i i kind of i liked some of the invention of like you know the the heating him up to become glass the washing him away <laughs> i like how he i like how he i i just think that visually there's some really great ideas with sandman um and but but because he can never be what he was supposed to be he just ends up being an afterthought and he definitely does in the final act, which we're about to get to. So, Venom and Sandman have teamed up. They kidnap Mary Jane and hold her as bait. And Peter goes to Harry and says, you need to help me. And we see Harry's scars and Harry says no. So Peter goes off to fight them on his own. Oh, God. And this is... (laughs) then all narrated by a British news reporter. Um, It's like the fundamentals of cinema have come unraveled because stuff is happening and we're being told she's going like, uh, it looks like Spider-Man is is being beaten brutally. And it's like, did you run out of budget to show us? There is is something it it feels like. At some point, either they ran out of money or Raimi ran out of interest in bothering nah, to shoot. I, it feels the stuff like that takes us to that scene, and then the it stuff feels that like reshoots. Yeah, no, I don't know whether maybe it was supposed to be that Sandman was a much bigger part of the fight, and then Venom came into it, or it feels like there were reshoots. I mean, there were moments in this. I, I rewound it and checked where. Like so, and I hate the effect anytime it happens where the symbiote peels back and we just and we see Eddie's, we see Topher Grace's actual face talking, <laughs> and Topher Grace says something, and the sound stops and his mouth keeps moving for a second afterwards. <laughs> I mean that is that is a 
abysmal. And yeah, all of the stuff with the reporter and the stuff that she's saying, which are obviously papering over the cracks mm. of editing, reworking the sequence. Into what even even just the yes. just the cut from like MJ gets kidnapped, and suddenly yeah. she's like up in a up in the buildings, like Sandman's well, massive. I mean, even there's then, just no continuity you've, you've between from one it. scene it's to not the next. Even, she doesn't even get as far as getting kidnapped. She gets into a taxi, and Eddie is the driver. Yeah, and, and then, then literally the next thing mm. is the news report about the car being up there. And it's not just so you have the you have the bizarre English news reporter, and it's it's kind of unfortunate that probably the worst thing about this movie is the person who committed yeah. suicide not long after it came out uh so that you know is unfortunate for her to her oh i d- i didn't know that was the thing yeah, yeah she did yeah uh, i'm not I, i'm but, not uh, obviously uh, not, i'm not, not a, saying this just because of that information you just said it's not her fault well, no, it, <laughs> it is it, no it's it, i think she's jarring because she's she is uh, was english and has an english accent and i think I spent a lot of that scene going, why is there an English news reporter reporting on American (laughs) TV on this scene? But actually, what I think is worse in that scene is the amount of time that is spent with the news anchor sitting in the studio telling us... It's one thing to have the reporter on the ground and it's like, well, at least the story is going on in the background. But there is a big chunk of time that is just him looking down the barrel of the camera telling us about and it. And there's, there's, sorry, there's another really weird thing that happens as part of that sequence where she is, and it's, it's I think it's the worst, it's one of the worst parts where she's looking up at what's going on and mm. she's like, oh, it's a real, real bad moment for Spider-Man this. Will he recover? And she is staring up and the camera is staring up and we cut back to the studio and her face is straight on looking down the barrel of the camera talking to the guy in the studio. <laughs> and there's just it's uh, and this is Sam Raimi who made Spider-Man and Spider-Man 2. It feels like he has just gone I don't what do you want from me guys? Here's I mean the, it doesn't here's the, that's the here's thing. The fight at the end. It doesn't even feel like he he made it. it. Yeah, maybe yeah. like it sort of feels like you know, if he hadn't been planning to stick around and make spider-man 4 i could almost believe they just took it off him (laughs) yeah yeah but there's nothing to suggest that it's just it's such a lapse in in every way i think there's sometimes a temptation to like suggest that oh there there is like because of the the mindset that you go through when you're watching a film and especially a film that seems to go off the rails to think oh, well, obviously he was invested, or the filmmaker was invested up to this point and then stopped caring. But obviously that's that's not how movies are made. They're shot out of sequence. Mm-hmm. The script the script exists beforehand. Uh, the visual effects <laughs> process is going on. Yeah. Uh, and, and in post-production, it's not like they're going, oh, well, let's nail scene one and we'll get to the final <laughs> yeah. act right at the end. But there does really feel in this film something like there are moments where you're like, and that is where we have stepped down a gear and that's where we've stepped down a further gear. And then this final sequence is just like no one gives a shit anymore. I I couldn't believe that this franchise that had like (laughs) wowed me in its in its first two installments was doing stuff as basic as. The lip syncing wasn't. It wasn't that the the speaking didn't match the lips. 
the words went on for less time than the lips were moving. It is it's very Superman 4, isn't it? It's just like as if the production had no money and no like power to to fix its problems. Mm. And that it's just suddenly it's being made by like a TV crew. It's yeah. it's very very bizarre. But anyway, so the actual the actual kind of um, sequence of events, I guess. So Sandman is kind of down at the bottom, being the oh, just quick, the... just quickly. Can we talk about how they screw up uh, Harry Osborne's like sequence by having, you know, the famously popular character Harry Osborne's butler <laughs> tell him like, oh, actually, no, Spider Man didn't kill your dad. Like everyone's I been mentioned this telling before, you. But... <laughs> Um, yeah, like it just—it seems like it's probably relevant. Again, do you wonder whether there are more scenes where Harry, like, coming to grips with, well, like, okay. maybe I, 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 okay, I'm disfigured now, and actually, if I track this through, a, a good... it was my fault, and it was my, and it was my fault as a result of my father's actions, and actually, have I a been good example this for a while is and something else that's different in the editor's cut which came out as part of a box set last year, um, is the the scene where Harry's butler goes, no, you should be a good guy now because like, you've been labouring under a delusion for years, um, is replaced by one where Harry Osborne looks, picks up the, the photo of him and MJ and Peter, like all shattered, and considers it, and comes to the conclusion on his own that actually I, I want to rekindle that friendship and, and help my friends out. Uh, so Can yeah, I... a, 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 a Harry who goes, Peter might have been responsible for my father's death, but look what I became when I tried to be my father. That was my father. Peter probably what he's been saying is probably true. Yeah, I'm gonna go and help him. Showing that emotional arc would be much more powerful than, hey mate, your dad's honestly he was a wrong. <laughs> yeah. Um. Can I just drop a fact bomb about? Harry's Ooh. butler. Go on. Bill Paxton's father. <laughs> wow. He wasn't generally an actor. He appeared in a few films, <laughs> uh, but apparently was a businessman, lumber wholesaler, museum executive, and occasional actor. John. That Paxton. is a great. That is a great fact. I enjoyed that a lot. Okay, so the actual final sequence: Sandman is down at the bottom. You don't really need to worry about him for most of this. He doesn't. <laughs> He doesn't matter. But the point is, he is making the fight harder because Spider-Man is having to fight two villains rather than one. And inexplicably, Venom is a lot more powerful than he is. <laughs> um, and so Peter is fighting up at the top. Things are going badly for him until, hey, great hero moment. New Goblin turns up. Yeah. And we're <laughs> like, ever. yes, Franco. <laughs> yes. Which is good, right? It is good. Yeah. It is good. Yeah. yeah. We like we like Franco turning up. I like I like him turning up. I like the 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 instinctive team up of the way that they are able to use their powers together and you know the fact because the mm. fact that they're friends and they sort of have a bit of an understanding with each other. It's yeah, we, we said it before. It's just nice. It's nice that he has a friend and it's cool <laughs> the way they team up. I too would like to have a friend one day. <laughs> Um, if, I, if I had a friend who could fly in on a flying surfboard and yeah 
help sort out all my problems. <laughs> nice. By the way, you know, you know, when all of that stuff is going on up there, does is Sandman doing anything? I'm trying to remember. He's just Isn't kind he of giant. Bottom, he's giant going, and roaring. Yeah. yeah. So alas, I, I do it does wish not that we had had. Um, I can sort of see the thinking behind putting Harry in that server outfit and having his glider be aboard. But how much cooler would it have been if you had had Harry turning up? on the actual goblin glider in the green goblin costume but with James Franco's face that would have just been better <laughs> yes but that was Sam Raimi had to listen to six years of uh, your movie was good but what was that no, but the, what was that costume I know the point is you have the costume you don't have the mask you don't have the static uh, face mask yeah. that was the biggest problem with that costume yeah just which also put, in retrospect put him in a I don't cloak. think that costume's that bad anyway but. put him in a cloak and everything would have been fine I still think he probably ends up having the best goblin costume that we see on screen. No. Yeah. It's a it's a, a snowboarder's outfit. Yeah, and it's fine. <laughs> with like uh, a... it, the face mask with the hair pointing out doesn't really work for me. Makes him look like a 90s image villain. Anyway, Harry turns up. He helps for a bit. That is good. And then Peter has been tied up by Venom and Venom is preparing to kill him and then how does it work does Harry Harry flies at Venom and is knocked off his off his surfboard and then Venom picks it up is go, is going to plunge the spikes of the board in, into Peter and instead Harry dives in the way yeah uh, the uh, the the actual sequence of that scene doesn't quite land for me. I I I get I get the intention. I it it comes off feeling a bit. It comes off feeling a little bit like this, there was another way there, right? There, there was. Yeah, like the way you, you presented have, you that. You didn't have to jump in front of that like giant spike. Yeah, you probably I mean, probably I, could have I, just pushed him maybe. When I rewatch this movie, I know that Harry's death is coming, but I kind of never quite realise that it's there. I'm like, oh, that's the... No, knock it out of his hands, and then you've left yourself vulnerable, and then he kills you or something. I don't know. But I I get it. I get what Raimi's going for, and it's a nice moment. (laughs) It's it's nice to see James Franco die, yes. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But die he does. Not quite yet. He gets a death rattle at the end of the sequence. (laughs) There's lots of times at the time after this fight is over to have a bit of a chat before ultimately everyone goes their separate ways. Um, Again, it, uh, but, like, it feels odd that MJ is the one by his side during that sequence. She's looking after him and it's like, wasn't this film about her and Peter at some point? Or wasn't this <laughs> film about Peter and Peter and Harry? No, but Harry and MJ are good friends. They are. Yeah, in that one scene. No, they've always yeah, been friends. Well, then he kidnaps and blackmails her. No, that for that, but that's when he's just been evil for a minute. <laughs> Through the whole I don't know. Tri- if they someone kidnapped and blackmailed trilogy. me, I'd probably be a bit more conflicted about them dying. And I think in in Harry's death moment, it has to be about Harry. And Harry has clearly always been in love with MJ. Like from from the first yeah, movie. I just I, I feel like the film isn't about that. <laughs> no, but that moment for Harry is. Maybe. Okay. 
I just I just want him to I just I'm just happy that those guys are together at the end. <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah, so then and then we get the the final showdown between Venom and Spider-Man and Venom does not like the old cling clangs and ding dongs. It's good and... it's good that they have a little flashback to the bell in case we can't remember that yeah, scene that happened just, it, 20 minutes earlier. Yeah. Uh you, I always think there are that that again smacks of a studio note, doesn't it? Like mm-hmm. a kid's gonna a kid's gonna remember that thing from twenty minutes ago. <laughs> yes, yes. I mean, you can just show the look of recognition from Peter. To be honest, I think that's probably a moment that, like, I think Sam Raimi's probably done things to that effect in the previous two movies. And because you're going with all the rest of it, you're like, fine, okay. But here it's silly. But then, yeah, so Peter. Puts all of the pipes around him, gives them a bit of a bash, creates a like giant organ xylophone kind of thing, and then throws the pumpkin bomb. I mean, there's actually just before the Venom. pumpkin bomb, there's a really nice moment where like the symbiote, like free of Eddie Brock and Peter Parker, kind of rears up, and in that mm. moment, it looks like terrifying and alien. And like everything that Venom in the comics is, when you when you take him the suit off any character, and that moment is really cool. But then it does a thing that kind of bugs me, and it bugs me a lot of the time in superhero movies, where it's just like Eddie is then left as this kind of like this piece that you don't want on the board. Mm-hmm. So so what if we can have a way where he dies? Everything gets wrapped not- up in a neat little package. Yeah, but there, there's lots of there's lots of villains dying across superhero movies, both good and bad. Where it's just more convenient that they're yeah, not around. This, after this one does not earn the death in any way. It's mm. just like, well, we don't want him hanging around, so off he goes. And I think it's I think it's different. You get to the end of some some movies. Uh, just off the top of my head, Black Panther, where you're like, oh, you've killed the villain. Did you need to kill the villain? Mm-hmm. Um, but. I I almost think like in that respect, like well, the character was so good, it feels like you're cutting your nose off to spite your face there by killing him. So fair enough, I'll 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 go with you on it. If you were brave enough to kill off Michael B. Jordan giving that performance, fine. In this situation, it's like well, Eddie Brock was rubbish, or Topher Grace was rubbish. Uh, Venom wasn't very good. Killing Venom and Eddie at the same time, whilst also absolving Peter of the guilt for it. It's also done in such a. It's done in such a like, like non. No one cares. Well, it's a non-committal way as well because it's like, oh, he jumps into the blast and he's disintegrated, and, and Peter goes, oh, Eddie, no, no, yeah. oh, just missed and, you. And like, you just can sort of you. imagine them going like, oh, if we want to bring back Venom for a solo movie, all we have to do is say like, oh, a piece of him crawled off, and here he is again. <laughs> I almost it almost feels like that sequence is edited wrong and it should have been Eddie diving in after the pumpkin bomb and then like two second pause and then Peter going, Oh Eddie, no, no <laughs> oh, just just didn't hear me in time. Just didn't hear me in time. Is this um, one of the pumpkin bombs that strong anyway? Oh like, pumpkin bombs. They, apparently can destroy, they can, can destroy an all entirely player, disintegrate a person and an alien. When previously they just sort of fucked James Franco's face up a bit. Very fair. But maybe the technology of pumpkin bombs this... had been... While while Harry had been recovering from his injury, had just been really dialing up the strength yeah, of those Harry had turned bombs. that one up to 11 before he brought it. 
<laughs> so, and then Sandman kind of has his exposition to Peter and says, maybe I wasn't that bad after all. And Peter goes, yeah, sure, forgiveness. That's the, <laughs> and he's that's like, the arc. Also, that's the arc that we kind of set up, so I guess we should complete it. Also, we have established that I'm unkillable. <laughs> yes. So, yeah, what you are you going to do? You, you can't kill me. I'm just going to go now. Is that cool? Off on the wind. All right. Yeah. Um, we have Harry's funeral, which, yeah, weird that Gwen is there. Uh, <laughs> Flash turns Flash up Thompson, at that funeral. Yeah. yeah. Uh, or Deathstroke, as I think he's now known. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then uh, the, the one thing I do like is this kind of just real quiet ending. Where Sam Raimi, so it almost feels like an apology for the previous 20 minutes where he just goes, they're just going to dance and you just need to know that they're still in each other's lives and that, yeah, just write this off as it was Venom's fault and they'll work things out. I mean, that is... Again, I think it, it's it's a nice moment. I don't buy that this film has fully worked out Peter learning his lesson because we didn't go on that arc with him. No. So if it, I kind of like in a way that the, the you know, a Spider-Man franchise ends on this note of uncertainty of like, well, maybe it'll be okay. Because that, that's kind of the Spider-Man thing is that, well, maybe it'll be okay. You know, he's he's always going to have this conflict and things will never be perfect for him. And that's quite like, that's a better ending than like her running off from the wedding to, to be with him. But it also smacks off, like, we'll resolve this in the next film, but there is no next film. Okay, so that's what I was going to ask. This is not the pitch. I'm not going to ask you to pitch Spider-Man 4. And I'm not, I don't really care about, like, who who the villains would have been. But what what would you have done with the, the kind of the Peter MJ status quo moving on from here? Because that, felt, that feels to me like it would have been the biggest challenge facing... Raimi in a fourth Spider-Man movie because you can you can add new villains in you can fix that side of things. Uh, I would have a film that doesn't have their relationship be a problem, the way that the previous three all have to varying degrees. You just do you just start with the wedding and go. These guys have figured it out. No, I'd have done the opposite. I I would have done the no no not an option. I would have done these two are broken up but still friends and she she helps them out but also they're both moving on because that's like unless you're going to marry them off and I don't think you should that's the only way to deal with that relationship is to to have her be sympathetic but also to be like well I can't I can't be Spider-Man's girlfriend I have to be my own person as long as she's in it oh she'll yeah she'll be in it she'll be the new Harry Osborn she'll be his best friend and and confidant but also not putting up with his bullshit but they had an upside down kiss and that means something yeah but he also did with Gwen Does it... that didn't mean anything <laughs> needs to have him with <laughs> Betty in the next one <laughs> I was going to say go, like, a... <laughs> I, I was more invested in watching those two kiss than anything else yeah exactly so that's 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 where if you, you break up him and MJ that's where you go with the next one yeah to the original love interest Betty Brant yeah. <laughs> Spider-Man's one true love interest yeah. the secretary the first woman he meets out of school <laughs> okay um well i think we we you know we, we feel like we've reached a natural end point um unlike sam uh, well, raimi. Every, 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 well unlike sam raimi and of course 
Let's just raise a glass one last time to Dylan Baker as Dr. Kirk Connors. <laughs> who waited so and waited and waited. And just to rub it in, they made Lizard the villain in the next movie. Uh, he, had to wait, he had to have his arm CGI'd out for three movies. <laughs> we, might, we might have to Hall of Fame him at the end of this year. We've already done Simmons, haven't we? I believe so, yeah. Simmons? He's... We... Well, I don't know. He's won. A, he's won a lot of copies. So uh, can we yeah. do Simmons again on the basis of about Actually, yeah, two I think and a half not... minutes of? He, ha- he, has- he hasn't been Hall of Famed. He's just he just keeps winning Best Supporting Actor. So <laughs> one thing I do want to say is that I think the design for Sandman is great and shows you that at least in the Raimi Spider-Man films, it is possible to do a faithful adaptation of a, of a villain's look without it being too hokey. Yeah. I mean, I say, I said before, you know, I like his performance, and physically, he's well cast for it. Mm-hmm. And I do love that, like, yeah, they find an excuse to put him in the stripy t-shirt. <laughs> it's an it's an easier costume to just do than like the Punisher, isn't it? Where you've seen multiple films go, how do we put him in the skull without it seeming <laughs> a bit too cringy or coincidental? Yeah, and they they've struggled. Yeah, I tell you what, I tell you what, Joe. Uh, Sandman used to be Silver Sable's fixer. Ooh. He, he was one of her, like, used to hang out with the Wild Pack when he was good. Well, I look forward to them casting um, Channing Tatum in Silver <laughs> Black. <laughs> Which is definitely so on the slate. Channing Tatum could have played this Sandman. Definitely. I mean, he's got Gambit, right? He, he's going to be Gambit. <laughs> yeah. Definitely. In 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 the post uh, Disney Fox universe, that movie is happening. Yeah, that movie that is still happening. Yeah, I th- I, th- I think I still think ooh, Channing ooh, Tatum's ooh. big uh, lost superhero thing is him not, especially now having seen the trailer, is Shazam. He could have been that Shazam. Shazam. Yeah. <laughs> I've got um I've got a thing we didn't talk about. Oh. Bruce Campbell's Maitre D. Oh yeah, I do you know I actually thought of that about half an hour ago. I was like, oh, we need to make sure we still talk about this, and then we didn't. <laughs> that that whole scene is so funny. Like you were you were talking about how there's a kind of screwball feeling to the some of the Franco stuff. That is a pure screwball scene. I'm I'm unsure if I prefer this or in the or him in the second one. I think both are great. Um, I would have loved it if he'd been Quentin back in the fourth one. I was going to say, I'm, I'm not sure if it was <laughs> if it was actually a plan or a rumour, but the idea that all of those characters were Quentin Beck in different um, yeah. <laughs> different guises would have been really good. You could that have really fun. seen um, Bruce <laughs> my, Campbell selling that. My favourite bit of that whole conversation is where he's like, of course I am French, and there's like a little <laughs> look between them of like, no, you're not. <laughs> this film is funny it has yeah. it has its yeah. it has its strong comedic scenes um yeah so that was spider-man 3 and that was the sam raimi spider-man franchise it's taken us three and a half years to get <laughs> there um but i think the franchise that made me fall in love with superheroes in general because i wasn't a comic book reader i was a very kind of casual watcher of cartoons and then the first Sam Raimi Spider-Man happened and yeah, it it led me on this journey and I think probably a crucial franchise for the three of us in terms of 
getting to the point where we do a superhero movie podcast. <laughs> I, I think as well that up to... So, up until the MCU came along, the third movie in a superhero franchise rule was held pretty strongly because you'd had Superman 3, Batman Forever, uh, Blade, this, Blade 3, and X-Men The Last X-Men Stand. X-Men 3. Um, yeah. And... I think this obviously since then we've had you know Iron Man three and Captain America Civil War and Thor Ragnarok so that rule is very much not a rule anymore. But as much as we talked about, I noticed thing- you didn't say the Dark Knight Rises. So. <laughs> Interesting. I did. Well, we've had that as well, which is great. Um, yeah, as much as we talked about all the things that I like and enjoy about Superman three, I think this is very comfortably the best of the bad third superhero movies. I think it's better than Batman Forever and Superman 3. Yeah, I would agree with that. Interestingly, I still... <laughs> I still I still feel like we haven't had a complete superhero trilogy. There's no there's no franchise I can think of at the top of my head where, I was, where I'm like, all three of those films are very good. I mean, I think... I the, think clo- the closest is Captain America. I think Batman Begins... I think Captain America slash... is absolutely, but... <laughs> I think I think Batman Begins slash Dark Knight slash Dark Knight Rises is the most aesthetically coherent. It's the closest to being an actual trilogy. Mm, even though... Even though I hate one of them. Cycle, of it. Um, <laughs> makes it clear that it wasn't intended as such. Yeah. Um, I think that's indicative of the fact that trilogies are a movie thing and not a comic book are they even a movie thing? thing like how many trilogies do you really get like basically did we just uh, well, did Star we just Wars, have Back to the future lord of the rings did we just there, there are a lot of there are a lot of trilogies but there are there are also a lot of movie series that feel like they have two movies and then they go well let's end it with a third one well yeah but i mean did we is this mainly because we had star wars Indiana Jones and Back to the Future, and they set a template for like Basically, these yeah. nerdy. But that's the point. But but comics don't have that as a template. Yeah, the superhero genre doesn't have that as a template. And and I think we've moved in the new superhero status quo. We've moved beyond trilogies. We've moved to a point where even if a character gets a trilogy, you've seen them in eight films. Yeah. So it's part <laughs> of an of an ongoing narrative, which is much more the mm. superhero storytelling form. Yes, and and if you if you have a superhero who has three movies, that's not that's not their narrative because they popped up here and there and done this and that, and the world is even even if they're not popping up in the stuff in between, the world around them is moving and we are seeing that world around them moving. They are not the center of their world because there are multiple centers of those worlds. I I would like it's to very point interesting. Out that- uh, Ryan Reynolds's Hal Jordan was definitely the centre of his world. <laughs> okay, um, we'll move on from Spider-Man Three, um, and I will give you. Well, no, no, I won't. I will ask uh, Seven James for their comic book recommendations based on Spider-Man Three. I mean, I think the obvious ones to go for with this are the Venom origin issues. Mm. Um, so I mean, you can go and read Secret Wars Eight if you like. No. You're not going to see much venom in there. Uh, the actual, the actual venom introduction is like Amazing Spider-Man 300. I think what's interesting, and if you, do, I know Joe, you don't go away and do a minisode on these, and I, you, I don't know how many of the recommendations you go and read, but 
Um, this is Todd McFarlane making his big splash. Like, he had been doing stuff for a little bit, but Todd McFarlane on Spider-Man and defining the look of Venom is pretty much what made him into the superstar that he became. And so it's that's, responsible for a lot of what went on in comics. That's in, why we're going to get another Spawn Marvel. movie any day now. Yeah. With okay. Jamie Foxx. And, and, but, but also, I, I think as well, I mean, I'm, I'm not the biggest fan of him, but McFarlane's superstar status is, I think, one of the reasons why Venom quickly became a big and iconic villain was because he was, you know, appearing in a series that was drawn by the guy who was the hottest artist at the time and, you know, has a very distinctive look as a result. I mean, again, I'm not a big fan of McFarlane. He draws Venom amazingly. Uh, and Seb, your recommendation? Uh, so, yeah, I alluded to it before, but um, just just a single issue, but Spectacular Spider-Man issue 200 uh, by James DeMattis and Sal Buscema. Um, it's the death of Harry Osborn. It's, it it's the culmination of the long-running Harry going mad storyline, but actually as a single issue, it's self-contained enough you know you can tell you get enough exposition as to what's been happening previously and it's just a self-contained story um of harry's kind of final acts of going a bit loopy but still throughout it all maintaining and insisting that you know mary jane and peter are his friends and he loves them but also he hates spider-man um and he's just kind of on this collision course um and it's just it's just great and it and it culminates in a couple of pages that are like dialogue free and are just brilliant brilliant comic storytelling and that just absolutely hit me every time i read them so um yeah as you know this film did the harry and peter story and harry's death quite well um but this is the source material it was working from and it's just one of the best spider-man issues ever Lovely stuff. So our final section is where we tell you what the pitch is going to be on the next minisode. Um, the next minisode is going to have two pitches. And James, you are actually going to have seen <laughs> Incredibles 2 by the time we get to the next minisode. So you will be able to take part in that as well. Looking forward to it. I'm foreseeing James coming out of Incredibles 2 just retweeting Rob Delaney and saying nothing else. <laughs> um, so <laughs> She's got to get past Judy Hopps first. I saw Robbie Collins tweeting about that. (laughs) We should move on. Um, um, So, uh, my pitch uh, for you on Spider-Man 3 is... Based on this movie having the cliché that it has one too many villains, I would like you to add a villain into a pre-existing superhero movie to make it better. So, tell me me the pre-existing superhero movie that you would layer one on top of. Like, not replacing anyone. You put them in with the rest of the plot to make that movie better. So, you can have fun thinking that one up. I've already got one. (laughs) Now in the next minisode. Can it not be Mysterio? (laughs) No, it's not. (laughs) Okay, uh, but that is it for this week's podcast. If you're enjoying the show then please do subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, Spotify, Overcast, or your podcast app of choice. And you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash cinematic universe. Do we have anyone to thank this week, James? No, the wheels have come off. It's all over. Ah, no. Guys, we would love to thank you. <laughs> Let's just thank everyone. Let's thank everyone who has supported us on Patreon up to this point. You can thank um, them by doing your bonus episodes. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs>
we've actually reached my next one, which I can't oh, do God. until you've each done your first ones. So oh, come on, God. get to it. Right. I'm publicly okay. shaming you. Well, that's a down. That's an ending on a downer. Yeah, maybe I'll do a different one. I'm trying, trying, trying to think. I keep, you know, when you're like, there's so many times where you fail to talk about something that maybe you're not that invested in talking about it. Or maybe I'm just scared of the workload. Um, <laughs> uh, you can find more episodes of Cinematic Universe at cinematicuniverse.com. You can get in touch via Facebook, on Twitter, at cine underscore verse, or send us an email to editorial at cinematicuniverse.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Goodbye. Goodbye. Look, it's Ant-Man uh, the Wasp in a movie that we're not looking up quotes from in case it spoils the movie for us. So, sorry, there's not a quote here, but next week we're doing Ant-Man and the Wasp. Bye! <laughs> I didn't realise that you would have that exact same realisation. Yeah. What you were doing. <laughs> there's no fucking way I am Googling quotes from that movie.